Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls. Welcome again to the Winds of Winter preview chapters. I am your jolly green giant. I am your jack of all glades. Here to take you through yet another of our Winds chapters. I won't take you all through the NBA playoff series, even though I could if I wanted to, but I will restrain myself, probably. No promises, but probably. Oh, I could easily feel a good 20 minutes. I could easily feel a good two hours talking for every series with you. No, I will resist, although I must say, haha, sorry LeBron, series is tied 2-2. Chris Paul's shoulder is working yet again. Here we go for game five. Yeah, by the time you all listen to this, it would have already happened. Hopefully I've not made an arse of myself, but no, I'm gonna say, Suns, 3-2 lead. Let's get them out. Goodbye, Lakers. Fingers crossed. Okay, 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 enough of that. Maybe, I might slip some more in, but no, we are here for a purpose. We are here to talk some scraps and scrolls. I'm talking to you from a sunny, sunny, sunny England. Summer is here in full force. The heat is up, the sun is out, the energy is here. I'm hoping you can tell through your headphones. We might be needing it today, seeing as what we are covering in the text is quite the opposite. It is quite dreary, quite bleak, and oh so dark. But no, here it is most definitely summer, so that is, even if the Princess Zelda is a bit more panty, have to have the fans on, have to keep her cool, but don't worry, she is a cool customer as it goes anyway. So yes, welcome, 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 thank you for coming back to the aisle yet again as we make our way, well, towards the end of these preview chapters, not many left, but this is a major one we have today. The Forsaken, yes, I utter its name, the Forsaken, Aaron Greyjoy, we return to him after oh so long, but we'll cover that in a second, before we do that, first we have to do our usual well thank yous to you for turning up and listening but thank you for all your interaction whether it is messages whether it is comments we've seen quite a lot this week actually comments on patreon messages on patreon comments on youtube comments on podbean in fact the youtube channel has really seen a little spike lately of subscribers as has podbean as well even more importantly than that i can tell you i can give you some very good news right here because the numbers for all episodes have been trending upwards lately which you obviously deserve all the credit for and i can now confirm for you that in fact may 20 2021 was the most popular month ever for the other faces we broke our own record sorry february your mark of 4500 or so is now in the dust may has the title with just a shade of 5000 it was 4906 total downloads so wow amazing thank you to everyone and yes of course a big thank you to emily of the eerie because the new episodes the new series is a huge part of that there's no denying it i'm sure you'll agree with me as the numbers do it's great to continue to have more feedback a lot of those messages i just mentioned are about the winter winter series the 100 questions they are about emily and just about the new direction we're going in this second century and about scraps and scrolls as well of course but while we're talking 100 questions while we're talking about emily don't forget last week saw the release of part two of 100 questions about the winds of winter so that's questions 11 through 20 you can find that now on patreon you can find that now on the public feed it includes questions like uh, unseen locations that we want to see in the winds of winter no surprise i'll spoil it for you here i went for storm's end but who did emily go for you have to find out we named some valerian steel swords i had a go for house blackwood myself again tune in to see what i came up with we talked about which characters we think might disappoint us early on we talked about the storylines we find most difficult to predict and plenty more 
another 10 full questions for you to listen to and debate with us about as well because well do keep sending your questions in but more excitingly in my opinion we're starting to get answers trickling as well both long and short again that's through messages that's on twitter and we're going to include some of those in part three which won't be too far in the future so get those in again across the social across the social media landscape you know how to get in contact you can tweet either one of us you can find us on discord you can find us on patreon in fact we've had a lot more emails to other faces podcast at gmail.com so that's great because obviously that's a longer form we can really get to know you that way i'm looking forward to sharing those answers because some of them are brilliant stuff that neither me or emily had considered and they in turn inspire more questions which inspire more answers which inspires more episodes so part two is in the books just another 80 questions to go part three will be with you soon as will some patreon only stuff keep your eyes out it's all coming don't worry as is scraps and screens it'll all get there eventually when i get the time and how do i know well it's because you will keep the motivation going especially our patrons of course we must give thanks to these special people who are so generous and who are so supportive and do send these lovely messages and such in fact let me be specific about a few here you know we always do it we'll never forget we must give our thanks to eric f to gardener queen to lomas knight rider survivor of the yin sleepover to grizzly m to glenn t to agan the sixth to lord commander namian darklin to km and of course to archmaster june healer of the lesser poxes thank you to one and all thank you to all patrons again not just for your obvious generosity but for the things you do send in and the correspondence we do have that means just as much honestly thank you so thank you thank you thank you i am so glad you're enjoying the hundred questions i am so glad you're enjoying scraps and scrolls and hopefully the same can be said for what's to come but we do have a purpose here today i can't spend all day thanking you i can't spend all day talking about the playoffs as much as i might want to instead we've got a big big old hill to climb today as we tackle like i said the most recent preview chapter in terms of release date the forsaken okay let's get into it shall we last week i told you that mercy was perhaps the most popular of all these preview chapters in part that was because it focused on aya who we all love but also in part because of the reach depth of the chapter the incredibly deep themes and the heart in conflict sense of it because of its incredible content to put it bluntly and i said the only challenger to that title was probably the chapter we're looking at today aaron won the forsaken because if we thought mercy was dark if we thought that chapter was great for sprouting theories or making us think about what the book could bring in general well just you wait for this one simply put the forsaken is something else that's the only name for it it's a category of its own it is a dark dark tale of personal and widespread abuse of concepts that transcend our normal barriers we'll be asked to think about things we've never had to before today it is a chapter where we must consider deep mysterious magic hidden aims public aims and ultimately where this series is going that's how important the chapter is perhaps out of all the preview chapters even both of the Ariannes dealing with the targaryen storyline the forsaken might be telling us the most important information about the winds of winter or maybe even the dream of spring as well as we get our best ever look at the potential third act villain euron greyjoy and it is a terrifying sight let me tell you we probably would have said that before we read the chapter he's bad enough already but what sweet summer children we were this chapter is it's sickening. I'm not going to beat around the bush for you. It can honestly make you nauseous at times, not just because of particular information discovered or scenes that we see, but simply the ride that we're taking on, the feeling that comes off the page, the world we're drawn into in terms of a horrible experience. 
the assault on the senses. This is physical, this is mental, this is emotional. We are shown a literal light show of horror through hallucinogenic visions and brought up trauma and the realisation of what's planned for the future. Now we've had tastes of horror from George, we know that's where he cut his pen years ago, that's his his bedrock, his foundation. Through our long Scraps and Scrolls journey, we've had a paragraph there, a passage here, whether that's down below the House of Black and White, or in an abandoned village above the wall, or even down in Kyburn Dungeon, but we've never had an entire chapter of it. We've never had anything like the Forsaken. I must make that clear from the beginning. This is new ground, important new ground. Sometimes, when the big, important chapters come up, it can be intimidating, especially if your self-esteem is a bit on the chitchy side, as mine is. Last time out, it was because I knew how much I am meant to people, and I mentioned that I felt I'd never quite get across how much of a big deal it is whenever she does show up. Well, it's the same here. How do I get across a, a visceral, raw, emotional journey this chapter takes? Or even worse, how do I get across the sheer brilliance of what this chapter is as a reading experience, as a construction of literature, as a piece of writing. How do I tell you how good it is or how important? And as ever, I have to stop and I have to remind myself, I don't need to. I don't need to tell you because you know. You've read it, I'm guessing. And you've experienced the feelings that come from it. You appreciate it for what it is to you. You don't need me preaching to you or to telling you anything because that's not how it works here on the aisle. That's not what we do, is it? More to the point, the Forsaken is definitely something that has to be felt more than discussed. And now, the brilliance of it is that we get to share those feelings. To a point you don't need me telling you how to feel, because you've already mastered that, you've done that part. What I will say is that like Mercy, and because the chapter is so popular, there are some amazing, amazing analyses out there from some of your favourite people in the fandom. Again, like I mentioned last week, I never read before, but let me tell you, I'm definitely looking forward to looking after I finish this recording, because there's some great, great stuff out there, some of the very best on A Song of Ice and Fire in general, about this chapter. And of course, they are going to be much better than me at getting across the, the literary value and what George really does with this chapter. So I encourage you to go and look, but that's later. You've been kind enough to come to the aisle to hear what I might have to say, and I must oblige you. While I do have more to say on the horror factor, I do have more to say on the man who brings such horror. But before we get to that, we should start the POV we're actually dealing with Aaron Greyjoy. So right here, there's a rush of irony waiting for us to begin because I've just been singing the Forsaken's praises and saying how great it is, but it comes to us from my least favourite POV ever. If you can cast your mind back to the feast episodes of Scraps and Scrolls, I don't think I was particularly shy about that fact. I do not like Aaron. In fact, that hate is double-edged. I didn't like him as a character, but I also didn't like him as a reading experience. I didn't like his chapters. The Prophet, Aaron's first chapter, and the first proper chapter of A Feast for Crows, was, and is, my least favourite chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire. And that wasn't just because of who he is. I don't like Cersei either, but I can recognise how good her chapters are. I enjoy reading those chapters. That's not so with Aaron. Out of all the preview chapters, you'd think we're coming to this one with the least previous exposure to said character, because we've only had those two feast chapters previously. Well, he's actually tied on that count, because Ariane also only had two previous chapters. In fact, technically, we've seen more of Aaron because he's been around longer. He did appear in previous books and in other POV chapters, but it definitely feels like Ariane had much more of an impact on us, even though she appeared on the page less. We all feel much closer and more immersed into her as a character, I think the majority of you would agree. And maybe that's because of their difference in roles within the mirrored plots. We know how closely the Ironborn and Dornish are related to each other as storylines. 
but Ariane emerges as the gem of her storyline as Feast progresses, and that's something that's looking to become even more true as Wind starts up, like we've seen. Aaron is the opposite. He was the one to start up the Ironborn plot, that's true, but then he trended downward ever since. He's much closer to an Aero Hotar type of role, which makes sense given that those two had their first chapters one after the other to open Feast. Aaron's half of that opening, The Prophet, as I said, is my least favourite Song of Ice and Fire chapter. And much of that is because of the character and how rubbish he is, how much I don't like him. But I also don't find it a particularly interesting chapter in itself. It doesn't hold much value for me. His second chapter, The Drowned Man, is way, way more memorable because it's the Kingsmoot chapter. So obviously that one sticks on our memory. That's a major point in the book and in the Ironborn storyline. But it's not Aaron himself who makes that chapter memorable. It's what he sees. It's the events of this really big plot point, like I say. Anyone could have had the POV for that chapter and we would have loved it. So I don't think that's really any kind of uh, medal to put on his chest. And that's the last we saw of him. That was it. So it's nowhere near the lasting impression or the meaning that Ariane left imprinted on us. And let's not forget that the Drowned Man, prior to halfway through Feasts in the first half of the book, so earlier in these preview chapters, we spoke about how big of a gap it had been for Sansa and for Arianne. Well, they both had chapters right at the end of Feast. So if we're going to do the maths now early on, that would be a 99 chapter gap overall for Aaron. And that's if The Forsaken is the very first chapter in The Winds of Winter, which I think we all know it's not going to be. Therefore, we're looking at a triple digit chapter gap between his last chapter and this one. The likes of which I'm pretty sure we've never seen. So this is brand new territory for us now. So, clearly, not just the biggest gap out of all the preview POVs, but for every POV in total. Every single surviving POV character has had at least one chapter since Aaron's last, and that includes Ario, or Melisandre, etc, etc. The only one that could possibly beat him is if Lady Stoneheart is given a POV at some point, which, I mean, it's possible, but it's probably not likely. As cool as it would be. Really, really cool. I'd sign up for it. But the point is that this is a character we've not dealt with for the longest time. And as we all know, many characters with those really big gaps of the past, like a Sansa or an Ariane, do pop up in other people's chapters to stymie that gap a bit. But not so for our subject today. We have not seen him whatsoever since the King's Moot. In fact, his absence has almost been the thing keeping him alive in the fandom's mind, because it's been brought up several times by Asher and Victarion. The damp pair is off doing this, or he's held up over here, or whatever it might be, but he's never actually turned up. And we know that George is normally a lot more definitive with what his POVs are up to, so that mystery and the fact that it's been brought up so many times by several different characters all but signposted that something was up with Aaron even before this preview chapter arrived. So it's been a long time, but in my mind, he hasn't been missed. Aaron is a dick, he's not nice. He's horrible to most people, he holds his own people back, and he's rubbish to Asher in particular. His fanaticism rubs me the wrong way because I'm an anti-religion type person, and I realise that side of him is more of a caricature than his other traits, but still. And besides that, we didn't really have much of an idea of what else he could provide to the story, what else could he actually do for us. Well, George is going to challenge both ideas in our minds today. The Forsaken might not make us like Aaron, I don't think anything could do that, but we will pity him. We will come much closer to understanding him and why he's the way he is. George is renowned for the depth and construction of his characters, and today we'll see some of his very best work in that regard. And rather amazingly, he does it not once but twice in this chapter, because while Aaron might be the POV, you'd better believe that Euron is the main character. And I'll say here actually that out of all the preview chapters, I think this one has the most reverse effect out of all of them, like the most reverse engineering. And what I mean by that is that our reading of the main series is changed or coloured most differently by this preview chapter. 
If The Forsaken had never been released, then our views of Aeron, but most importantly Euron, would be entirely changed. And not just now, at the end point after reading Dance, but I mean while you're reading through it. The things we've been discussing for both of these characters throughout Feast and Dance has been where we've been mainly concerned with them. They have had a lot of this chapter in those discussions. Our views of Aaron would be different, but most importantly, our thoughts on Euron would be entirely changed. We already know from the relevant chapters in Feast and Dance that Euron is a walking nightmare, but the chapter today adds so much more to that. The knowledge we get, the extra information in his background, plus what we actually see happen within the chapter itself, shows what a true, unbelievable monster we're dealing with. His shadow looms that much larger, specifically because of the Forsaken. And like I say, the same can be said of Aaron, even if it's to a lesser degree. In his lone two chapters, he's hardly endearing. He's not supposed to be, but we definitely don't like him. And the Forsaken doesn't wipe that away, but it does add that other shade. It does add that. Well, maybe it's not even pity particularly, but we'll hold back a little bit because we now know what's coming for this guy. An absolutely miserable, torturous experience, as well as extra knowledge on his abuses of the past. So it's classic George, isn't it? It's giving us what we wish for and making us feel bad. Now, in fairness, this isn't anywhere near the level of a Theon or a Cersei because Aaron wasn't on their level in terms of villainy or importance. He never did enough to make us really want anything bad for him, but we still didn't like him. He wasn't a good person, but it's just not the same thing. We definitely never wanted anything like this for him or for anyone else. We've plunged some depths in this series, but again, the Forsaken truly does bring something else. Let's go back to Euron. This chapter is what frames him as someone worthy of being the villain for the third act, both in terms of danger what he might do to the world, and just sheer unnecessary evil. We meet the psychopath. Again, we know, we've seen the hints, but it's just not equivalent to what we get today. George is very, very good at not making anyone too cartoonish, but this is this is as close as we get, and yet it still feels grounded in that realism that we're used to. We can still see how he's coming about, why he's like this, and what he might do, even though he is going to bend our minds and ask these questions that we weren't even aware could be questions and all that kind of thing. It will get very complicated, it will get very, very deep, and it will cast a definite shadow. Obviously, we're going to get into this in a moment in the text, so I won't go too far here. But what this chapter is designed to do is to make us worried about what this guy could do to characters and places and people that we love. And the amazing thing is that's not even restricted to those who are near him, like, say, Sam and Gilly. They're in Old Town. They're very, very close to Euron at the moment. No, the things that he proposes, the things that he talks about, makes us worried for just about anyone. This is going to affect the whole world. The scope of this chapter, even though we're relegated to, essentially, a dungeon and the depths of a ship, is actually way way larger than anything else in the preview chapters we've got we're talking about things that will affect everything at least that's what euron is saying and it's pretty easy to believe him from everything we get so again without spoiling anything or going too far we'll see his evils of the past what he's truly capable of and his sick again psychopathic reasoning for such we'll see how he views the world and what he wants to do to it and we'll see what he's willing to do politically to not just his enemies, but even his own people. Euron sheds the agreement. He sheds the rules of warfare. He doesn't obey them. He goes out of his way to be overtly cruel, overtly violent. He is seemingly loyal to absolutely no one. Again, whether it be his own people, his own family, they're all going to suffer his hand in this chapter. So that's the kind of thing that will make us worried because this could happen to anyone. He's more than willing to spread it around. He's more than willing to just take down the world. That's what he proposes in this chapter. He wants to destroy everything. And again, we've heard this before. We knew it. But today in The Forsaken, we're going to go a step further from knowing and get closer to experiencing and kind of seeing it and being told that we need to believe in him, that he might actually do this. And that this perfectly constructed world that we're all so familiar with could really change for the worse a lot in the hands of this guy. 
And again, this is just one of those things I can't tell you. It has to be felt. It has to be felt through the chapter. So we'll get to that very, very quickly. There's a couple more things. Like I said earlier, this is a definite light show. I'll use that word again. All these chapters bear multiple readings, like every chapter in the Saga of Ice and Fire. But rereading here, this chapter, is even more useful in terms of seeing what lies beneath because there is so much to distract our sense initially, whether it be the violence or freaky-deaky visions they make a return today or guessing what is coming around the next corner in Nightmare Alley. Because there is so much going on. Yes, we do have the big stuff but we have reflections on the king's moot and ironborn culture we learn how euron is playing and tempting the reach we have insanely deep discussions on religion and what it means to a person an individual or even more intimately how such worth can be destroyed because that's what we're seeing here this is what the forsaken is about how to destroy every sense of a person killing that's too easy we've passed that today this is about how to take everything that means something from someone the merely physical is a memory it's in the rear mirror because religion is so internal and intrinsic it's supposed to be protected somewhat Euron Greyjoy challenges that notion head on today as he wages war with the gods with the concept of religion itself you can see what I mean when I talk about mind-bending and on top of that yeah we do have an actual physical war to talk about we do have politics we have eldritch creatures and how they might be gained we have mysteries of blood and the sacrifice and what plans could be going forward and oh so many theories and things to think about the future there really is no other chapter like it i think it's probably best that we just get on with it quickly before we do this chapter is 5209 words long it's actually the shortest of the free air and chapters that we've seen both feast chapters are about 500 words longer but then we're only basing that off two in the first place so it's not like it's a big average but it's weird because this this feels longer i think you'll see in a moment because of how much we cover because of how much there is this is actually the shortest chapter we've had in quite a while doing these preview doing these wins preview chapters but this one just feels full to the brim there's no wasted space whatsoever and i was going to put in a little bit here about how this was the last release i think this was the only one released since i've got involved in the fandom i imagine that's true for a lot of you i remember the excitement when it came out i remember the reactions and those analyses coming out and everyone being like hey this is a massive big deal and and they were right so i'm not going to go into that too far i think we just need to get on with it i think we need to enter the text firstly the chapter title the forsaken well, what's in a name? I don't think we need too much help with saying why George might have chosen this. It's because Aaron, basically, you're screwed. Let's find out how, shall we? Let's enter the Forsaken. Our opening line today is, it was always midnight in the belly of the beast. So we've got a nice short one and one liner this time round, which we haven't actually had all that much in these preview chapters. To be honest, it's the first real paragraph that will truly hit us hard because it is so shocking and does reveal so much. But to look at the singular line first, it is pretty effective. I don't think we need to guess what kind of tone George is opting for with this. Remember that we have absolutely no basis so far for where Aeron is or what he's doing or what's going on. Other than logically guessing it's got something to do with the Iron Islands, we're pretty much clueless. And George isn't going to try and solve that for us with the first line. Instead, he's going to tell us that we are somewhere bad, that darkness is coming for us. And I'm being literal. The line says it was always midnight. An unending night. That's tone enough for any story, but in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, with its tales of the long night, it means that a little bit more, doesn't it? The belly of the beast doesn't really tell us anything, unless we have some truly wild theories about Aeron being swallowed by a whale, or a kraken or something, but we know that it is bad. Aeron is obviously somewhere he doesn't want to be, he's somewhere not nice, this will not be an easy time for us. And then comes the second paragraph, where George switches technique. Now he opts for the explicit, as we find that Aeron is a prisoner, 
He's naked and he's been left somewhere where water is flowing in from the tide. He's even been left submerged in that water. It's coming up all the way to his hips. So he's been in extreme pain as we hear about his feet having grown huge and puffy and swollen. Quite the awful image just to start with, isn't it? He's got extreme cold. He's got extreme exposure. Perhaps we're even worrying about him drowning at some point. So George is really pointing the arrow straight towards us right at the beginning. Already we have to start questioning ourselves. Well, do we feel bad for Aaron or do we think it's kind of deserved because he is a bit of a dick. Rereaders will know that it's going to be so so much worse in a few pages but it's something for us all to think about at the beginning. As Aaron himself tells us he is in a dungeon of sorts but time and place are now complete strangers to him and that in itself is torturous enough to have no knowledge of what's going on or what's about to happen to you or where you even are. It takes the ground from under your feet you're just left in purgatory essentially that can really have an effect on you and you're in complete darkness as well. That's some incredible mental torture even without the added physical pain of cold water coming in again and again and we have to think he's already been here for some time as well if this physical effect has gone so far already. Let's also not ignore the link here between Aaron and his family members. Dance started out in a very similar way with Theon. He was a prisoner as well, kept down in a dark dungeon and forced to eat rats, etc, etc. You remember the story, I'm sure. Indeed, that was a much longer imprisonment that took a lot more from Theon than Aaron has lost, at least so far, so far as we can see. And to be honest, I think a comparison between Ramsay and Euron is fairly reductive, but you can still see that connection, can't you? Are we going to see a similar arc then? Will Aaron follow Dance Theon? Hmm... Probably not, but will he at least be able to break away? Maybe he'll still technically end up in the hands of the enemy, as Fion has in Winds. We're yet to cover that chapter, I know, but we could even make the comparison between present Fion and Aeron. Fion is still in chains at the beginning of his preview chapter, so is his uncle. And let's not forget that Asha is technically still a prisoner as well. She's lost her own physical chains the last time we saw her, and again in the Winds preview chapter coming up, but there's still this common theme between the family. And what we might even find is that both members of the Elder Generation, not just Aaron, but Victarion, are also prisoners of Euron in one way or another. Maybe Victarion's chains aren't physical or viewable, but he is under the influence, isn't he? So he could very, very easily still be his brother's prisoner of some sort. So our initial question is, what the hell is going on here? Why is he imprisoned? Where is he? What is going on? And while we'd normally get that tease and be allowed to wonder if he's been taken as a hostage or by the enemies of the Ironborn, maybe it's the Warriors of the Reach or whatever it might be, we're not given the room for that this time. The Forsaken is a chapter of explicitness and George is going to put that in right from the beginning. We're told directly after the first nine that it was the mute that stripped him before chaining him up wherever he is now. And we know who the mutes belong to. It's Euron. Euron has done this. He has imprisoned his own brother, the religious head upon the isles, and also the one who happened to be decrying him as not worthy for the throne that he just took for himself. And that's not really surprising for many readers, is it? That had already been a theory of Aaron's fate long before this chapter actually came along. As I say, it did come up fairly often, and even with other characters, they were postulating their own ideas of where Aaron could be. Euron did come up. But whether guessed or not, it does a superb job of getting us pumped for the chapter to come. If we were asked beforehand what we could really get out of an Aaron chapter or an Aaron wins arc, what the character himself could offer us now, we likely would have struggled for answers. But now we know. He's going to be our Euron cam. We'll likely see either the man himself or at least some evidence of what he's been up to, what he's going to get up to, and given how important we all think Euron might be going forward, or even in terms of the immediate with Old Town and his plans, we're definitely hungry to discover more, and Aaron's just become that much more valuable to us. 
We might learn about what he's planning for Victarion, or Daenerys, or the Reach and the Ironborn in general. We might see more of his general plans for chaos and how he's going to disrupt the entire story, or bring the world into this eternal midnight, or even more. So yeah, we're pretty interested from the get-go. Now we see why this chapter is here, and we're all signed up for it. We have such ideas confirmed for us immediately, when Aaron tells us before he came to wherever he is, he was on board the Silence Euron ship. And to confirm that the Crow's Eye is going to be the focus for both character and chapter, Aaron even saw the face of his tormentor in the moon the night he was imprisoned. Now I wonder, is the moon mentioned here to give us another slight connection to Bran, who has more and more moon imagery in his chapters as we go forward? Hmm, it is possible. The confirmation of this being a physical dungeon also raises the question of where he is. If he was seized and put on the silence, then we know he was actually taken before Euron even left the Iron Islands and moved down to the Shields. So he lied to Victarion back in the last chapter in which we actually saw him. At least I think he did. Probably need to reread that chapter to actually be sure. But as my memory serves, I'm pretty sure he didn't admit to having Aaron or knowing where he was. In fact, while we're talking of that chapter, let's not forget, he showed some weakness back then in terms of his standing amongst the Ironborn captains. He might seem all-powerful here in the Forsaken, as we'll see in a few moments. But his original plan was for everyone to go off east to get the dragon first. But Ironborn, they were too stuck in the mud though. They just wanted more plunder down in the reach they liked it too much too much of a good thing hence how we've ended up with what we'll actually get later today that's exactly what he has given them down in the south still it's interesting how he's had to adjust and what his plans might be now so that's another thing we're going to find out today but for here at the beginning we still have to ask if this is where we are are we still at the shields well it's possible who can say what the timeline is going to look like in early winds and how long this chapter is going to cover in itself or perhaps Euron has already moved on and we're at the next stage we could be at the arbor we could even be at old town or somewhere nearby we've got no clues just yet this far into the chapter instead george tells us more of the horribleness of Aaron's current existence and he actually does link it much more closely to those early Fion dance chapters as we talk about rats coming through the dark water testing Aaron's defenses and seeing if they can begin feasting on him see if they can get away with a little nibble here and there so far he's kept them off by shouting and making a fuss unfortunately such techniques don't work on the lice and the fleas and the worms that are moving over his skin and that incredibly long hair of his and his chains are so short that he can't even itch them. Ugh, again, horrible imagery. I think George is really reaching out of the page here. He likely makes us all feel itchy and dirty as we read along. Every detail gets worse, almost as if mere random fate also isn't allowed to bring any relief. It's not enough to be shackled and chained. He's got to be shackled and chained by fetters that are rusty and cut his skin. And even the pain of that isn't enough. The waves have to come in and wash those cuts with salt to make them burn all the more. Consider that we're told how restricted his movement is. I think being chained at all is incredibly traumatic, it's terrible, but not being able to move whatsoever and knowing that each and every day that water is going to come, it is going to hurt, your feet will swell even more, your cuts will sting even more, it might even get so high as to drown you and you can't do even the simplest thing to avoid it. That is true torture, that is awful. But we're also given a hint that out of all this physical pain is actually the emotional that might be worse as Aaron reminds us of one of the key features from his long ago chapters, the dreams and memories of his brother Euragon and the scream of a rusted hinge. That was a big thing before, a major part of who Aaron is as a character. So that's something else we now wonder if we're going to find out more about and yes I can tell you we certainly will. For that George is willing to tease. We're not going to find anything just yet but you get the feeling it is going to come up later. To keep the comparison up with Fionn's chapter we're told how the lone light in Aaron's constant midnight comes when he served his rare food and George actually just keeps up his onslaught early on here. There's no relief even with this. The food is as bad as it can get while still being called food and even that makes him sick more often than not. 
the man who brings it provides nothing, no sense of comfort, or even the sense that you're still a human because he can't converse with you. When talking about other prisoners throughout the series, we've talked about the mental effect of being ignored or treating as less than human and what it can do to a person and their sense of self. Aaron is pretty far off from being stable at the best of times, but it has just as big an effect right here. The difference is, of course, that this is not really a choice for this servant. He'd only be able to provide so much anyway because he is another mute. His tongue has been removed, and Aaron points that out specifically, and the way he does so should be kept in our mind for the end of the chapter. The quote specifically is, His tongue was gone, Aaron did not doubt. That was Euron's way. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Perhaps we wonder if that's the fate that Aaron will receive. It could even happen in this very chapter. That might be something we're going to witness today, another removal of a tongue. As much as we might have our silent lion theories about Tyrion, this would still be a huge, huge thing to happen to, well, anyone, of course. But especially to someone who believes himself a prophet, someone like Aaron, whose role it is to spread the word and provide the judgment of his religion. Speech is a very, very important part of that, of course. So this would completely change his life and really affect how he serves his God and gets on with the purpose of his life. So the mute doesn't bring much, but he's better than nothing. And he does bring light. You'll remember Alistair Florent begging for a torch and not to be left behind in the dark down in the depths of Dragonstone, won't you? When the mute does go, Aaron is left with nothing save for putrid surroundings. George is truly laying it on thick here at the start to get across how awful it is. Except it then becomes even worse as we're told that he's sometimes visited by Euron himself. This situation is bad enough, well, we've just added an entirely worse thing. Waking to find someone standing over you is also absolute rubbish, but imagine opening your eyes and seeing Euron of all people. Yeah, that is actually the worst. Euron apparently wanted a chat with his brother while they were still sailing on the silence. And the description of Euron during that visit, with his red silk cloak, his red eye patch, his blue lips, well George is really making sure that this guy pops off the page. So far, the chapter has been all darkness and shadows. What little colour there has been has been presented as weak and drained. And then in walks Euron, the man of the chapter, the person we're all here for. The colour really blazes off him. He's different. He is bizarre. And yes, you're right, that red eye patch, the colour there makes us think of Blood Raven. It gets that connection going again. It won't be the last time this comes up in the chapter. It's going to come up near the end as well. We'll have to have a big discussion on that at some point. There's also the blue lips. Well, we know why his lips are blue, but the colour itself, the blue, that always just points us towards the others, doesn't it? Their blue eyes, which is another common theory when thinking about Yor and his connection to the others and what that could all mean. That's something else to discuss, but like we say, there is actually a physical reason for those blue lips that we will also discuss. That is still to come in this chapter. Aaron asks two questions of his brother, though as he does, we note his voice is cracked from dehydration and underuse, and his lips are crusty with scabs. So if we take this and some of the language used in the opening page, then it can really seem like Aaron is being really slowly drowned or slowly returned to the sea. We know that's a big part of his brand anyway, that's how he arrived at who he is now, so we have to wonder if this is some thematic writing by George or whether maybe Euron is consciously doing this on purpose to mock Aaron and break his belief and connection with what matters to him most. That is very, very much a strong part of the chapter. But let's get to these two questions. Number one, why am I here? Well, that goes unanswered for now. So that we have the second, where are we sailing? This one is answered by Euron. He says, south for conquest, plunder, dragons. So Euron is still sticking to the party line that we last heard from him. 
This is pretty much what he preached at the King's Moot. The idea that they are, or were, sailing south would point to this meeting taking place either on the journey from the Islands to the Shields, or I suppose from the Shields down to the Arbor. We assume it can't be any later than that because there wouldn't be any further south to go, unless Yorin is actually going to take us completely off the map. And let's face it, if anyone was, it might be him. That's just the kind of barriers he likes to break. So we're left asking, is this before or after Victarion was dismissed with his mission to go and collect Daenerys? At the moment, it could be either. We will find out, but at this point in the chapter, we're still lost, we're still floating. Perhaps that is what he means by going after dragons, or it's entirely possible he's got something else up his sleeve and is going to be much more active in that part of the plan than originally presented, or he's, like we say, just repeating pleasantries almost. This is how he got the Ironborn on board, but we know he doesn't really believe in it, at least not the first two parts. Dragons, okay, he's got much more of an interest in, but Conquest, at least as the Ironborn see it, Plunder, at least as the Ironborn see it, that's not for him. That's just things to get everyone else on board. That's the carrot he's putting in front of the Ironborn's face. For his part, Aaron refuses to buy into these promises any more than he did at the King's Moot. He didn't buy it then, he's not now. Such was enough to win those foolish Ironborn, but not Aaron. He's got the foolish part down, we know that, but he's still not willing to believe in his brother. When he protests, he gets a reminder that Euron is king now, and therefore commands all, including anything and everything that happens to Aaron. So Aaron repeats his first question, what is Euron going to do with him? This time he does get a response, what can you offer me that I have not had before? And that reply, unfortunately, is going to become all the more sinister later on in the chapter. It's freaky enough now, but just wait. He does also provide a proper logistical answer, though. Let's remember what we learned in Feast. Whatever else he might be in terms of the magical and the occult, Euron is also very, very skilled politically. That might even be where his true talents lie, and the rest is just a vapid smoke show. We almost have to cross our fingers that it is. But either way, he knows how to protect himself and his rule in terms of manipulating people and their roles, the roles they play. In this case, it was sealing the loyalty of men that he left behind on the Iron Islands. We've discussed that about him before. He's done it with his captains. We've seen it in Victorian's chapters. And we've also discussed what he brings up here. The fact that he sealed Eric Ironmaker's loyalty with a marriage to Asher, even though she wasn't even present for it, but that's by the by. But perhaps Euron wasn't entirely confident in Eric's abilities. Or, more likely, he just knew that Aaron, as a religious figurehead as the damp hair, could whip up a lot of trouble if left to his own devices. He already had a pretty good go at it back at the King's Moot. Now, with Euron and almost all of his strength sailing off south for this plunder and dragons, whatever else, and the effects of his surprise return wearing off, it is easy to imagine the damp hair gathering strength or maybe even inciting a rebellion against Eric and retaking the Isles. We know what a big deal it is for any king to lose home turf, and all these captains that he's gained would certainly want to turn around and go back to their homes if they hear that they're being burned down and whatever else. So Euron just removed the risk by bringing Aaron with him. Yet as we've seen through other chapters, he was also smart enough to apparently keep it quiet. So there's probably no rescue attempt about to come through the door. We have another quote. First, Aaron says, Release me. The god commands it. To which Euron replies, Drink with me. Your king commands it. That is a pretty interesting line, I must say. It shores up that feeling we have of Euron putting himself on a pedestal above all, including the gods. He's saying right here, I don't care what your god says, I care what I say. He's challenging them. He believes he has more power than them. And he proves it here with who he thinks Euron should really be listening to out of the two choices. Not that he does give him an actual physical choice when it comes to the action. Instead, we see the first big abuse of the chapter as Euron grabs his brother's hair and forces him to drink some strange liquid that Aaron knows nothing of. But we do, of course we do. We've seen it before, back in Calf. It is the shade of the evening, that thick, inky drink made from the leaves of the trees that surrounded the House of the Undying. Yet we do have to cast our minds quite a way back for this, but I'm sure we remember. Whether there are other sources around the world, we don't know yet, but so far in the story, that's where we've seen it. 
Just to remind you, the shade of the evening apparently has a rotten taste on first contact, but can also remind the drinker of any number of former tastes. It is assumedly fairly addictive, as many of the warlocks of Calf have their lips turned blue from consumption. The undying that Daenerys encountered had their entire bodies turned blue they drank so much. And of course, Daenerys herself did drink a glass upon entering the House of the Undying, leading to several famous visions, some of which we're still puzzling over at this point. That was a very, very major part of the story. In fact, really, it was the only point of the story, full stop, for Danny's clash arc, unfortunately. Victorian was also offered a glass back in that final chapter of Euron, but in perhaps his smartest ever move, he spat it out straight away and remained visionless. Or maybe he's just not cool enough to see visions. Equally possible. Aaron is powerless to do anything but curse his brother. And Euron, we know, is not affected by curses. He probably quite likes them. He even says he could make a cloak of tongues from those who have spoken them against him. And I'm going to assume he jests, but again, if anyone was going to, it is this guy. To his credit, Aaron still offers resistance despite his situation. He spits in Euron's face, but even that doesn't really provoke a reaction. Euron is too confident, too comfortable in what he's doing, to be bothered by such things. After forcibly drugging his brother, with an intense hallucinogenic no less, just to make this captivity even worse, Euron leaves him to it and Aaron begins to suffer. Yes, we've reached that part of the chapter, it is vision time. It's been a long time since we've actually had to speak about visions and prophecies and such. It hasn't really come up yet in any of these preview chapters. Even in dance as a whole, we didn't get a lot of visions. We did get a few from Melisandre, and we had some dreams from Jon, and technically we had Bran as well, although those were actual literal memories, so they don't count. But overall, it hasn't been something we've had to talk about a lot lately, which is cool because sometimes they can be tricky, and you know I don't put a lot of truck into prophecies anyway, but visions, they're slightly different, they're a little bit more interesting. And like I say, no, far from a strength of mine, but there's plenty of people who are fantastic at it, and you can always go and seek them like I encouraged you to earlier. But let's take our crack at it. Aaron's first vision concentrates on that which is still most important to him personally. In fact, it's both of his most important things. His brother Euragon and the Drowned God. It's the former that apparently appears before him, still with the black arm that represents the infection that killed him all those years ago. So we have guilt raising its head straight away. The obvious trauma that Aaron has never left behind is materialising in front of him. Remember, that killing infection of Euragon's arm was as a result of Aaron drunkenly throwing an axe and taking off Euragon's fingers because they are ironborn and that's the kind of thing they like to do. So combine that with being forced to revisit their shared trauma at Euron's hands, and of course Yuri is going to appear first. Guilt ghosts of the past, well, they come up for everybody having a vision while in a tight bind, don't they? We've seen that before. Euragon really checks every mark. He was already the person who meant the most to Aaron. They had that trauma. He represents massive guilt. He was indirectly the path to religion and the creation of the damp hair because all of the drinking to, to cope with that trauma and other trauma, well, that was Aaron's first coping mechanism, religion was the second. So considering all that, it makes it all the more important that what Vision Euragon is actually here to do is take Aaron down a peg in his belief of the afterlife. He asks if Aaron knows what lies below the sea, or after death, essentially. Aaron is as confident as ever with his answer. Of course he knows. There's nothing he's more sure of in his mind. The drowned god awaits. But Yuri disagrees. He says no. There's only worms. So there's a few options here. Like we said, a, a big part of this chapter is not just Euron destroying Aaron physically. That's too easy. Anyone can do that. He wants to destroy everything that means anything to Aaron. He wants to destroy him spiritually, rip out every belief about the world and about his life and stamp all over it. So maybe in some ways it's not so different to what Theon went through really. And that's the first part of this. 
This Eurovision, and the one coming up next, contribute to the idea that the drowned god isn't real, and neither is anything that Aaron has worked toward or believed in. So we see that destruction goal of Euron's in full swing. How large a percentage of belief in religion is about what comes in the afterlife? Well, I don't know, but probably quite a bit. And this is the most important person in Aaron's life, telling him that it's a lie, and the religion might as well not exist. But also remember, this vision is being generated by Aaron's own mind, as far as we know. So maybe it reveals some insecurities of his own that he's never allowed himself to really access. Perhaps he already worried that his life was a lie, or has been wasted, or however you want to term it. And this is just how it comes bubbling up. Or more likely, it's the guilt again. The guilt that he killed Euragon. And maybe guilt that he didn't save him from Euron as well, despite Aaron being younger. Dedicating himself to religion was already partly to deal with that guilt, but maybe this is a sign telling him that he's not done enough to make up for Yuri's death, that he's not paid for that crime, and therefore he doesn't get the rewards of his religion. Or maybe it's as simple as a man who is getting older, who is obviously in a very dangerous situation right now, and is coming to grips with his mortality or starting to wrestle with what happens in the afterlife. But the vision morphs as Yuri actually changes into Euron. Euron in dark magic mode as well, with his smiling eye hidden, and the other, the blood eye, now out for the world to see. It's a costume change to suit the theme, we're given quite the image of our new big baddie. So this part is perhaps saying that everything comes back to Euron eventually. It's Euron who is the root of the pain behind Euragon, aside from his early death of course. But it fits into what we just said about Euron versus the gods as well. We've just had the vision of Yuri say that there's no drowned god, only to be shown that there absolutely is a Euron. He's the one around to stay, he's the one you're going to have to suffer through. But to be honest, on an initial read at least, I think most of us are skipping past what Euragon changing into Euron represents because of the description we get of Vision Euron. I'll read it to you here. Clad head to heel in scale as dark as onyx, he sat upon a mound of blackened skulls as dwarves capered round his feet and a forest burned behind him. So it's that first part that our eyes are automatically drawn to. The reference, the clear reference to Valerian steel armour. We're still yet to see it. We still don't know what it could do, but I know we'd all absolutely love to find out. Can it turn away Valerian steel swords? Does it work against Dragonflame? Or perhaps most importantly, does it protect against the weapons of the others? If so, that suit of armour would be the most valuable item in all of Westeros, seeing as there's apparently only one, and we really, really want to find out how it's going to make its way to Jon, because that's what we figure is going to happen. Remember, in Dance, Jon did dream himself atop the wall, armoured in black ice, and at the time, we discussed that that probably meant Valerian steel armour. So we're hoping that this buys into that, and it does mean that he will get his hands on it, which would assumedly mean Euron's defeat, or Euron losing the suit of armour, which would be nice, or maybe there is just two, or more. Either way, we are definitely looking forward to seeing that on page, and luckily, we're going to be satisfied, we will discuss this later on. What about the other parts of the vision? Well, the blackened skulls, they're rather easy, they probably represent death. I think we could have guessed that Euron is bringing large-scale, very large-scale death and destruction to Westeros. But are there other clues though? A mound of skulls has me thinking of Bloodraven again, because Bran did find that big pile of skulls down in the depths of the cave. These ones have been blackened too, so does that mean they've been burnt? Does say a forest is burning behind him, and we hate that image here in the Isle, don't we? Yeah, very anti-Arlaters, we love our trees, don't burn any forests. But what forest is this? Does it mean the Kingswood? The Wolfswood? Well, I don't think so, I suppose it could. Maybe it just represents the Reach, or Westeros in general. The word forest might connect too closely to the children of the forest. Is it their skulls that he sits upon? Does he view them as specific enemies because he hates Bloodraven? We're going to assume that he's aware of them, not necessarily, but he definitely could be, and that opens up a whole range of possibilities, doesn't it? And you know how much we like talking about the children of the forest, so I'd be very, very interested to know more about that. 
Does he know of them? Does he want to wipe them out? It just opens so many avenues in our mind. This is why this chapter is so brilliant. There are dwarves capering around his feet as this forest burns. Considering the source of this vision in the shade of the evening, we're linked to the House of the Undying and Danny's vision that saw Westeros also be ravished by dwarves. So is this another sign of the same thing, that another war is coming? Or is it just that Euron is king of the Ravagers and will bring all that destruction? Or, if we accept that those Ravagers were the different kings fighting over the continent, as we discussed at the time, does that mean that Euron will make them all dance at his feet, all the different kings? Is that how powerful he's going to be? We're really talking big-scale stuff in this chapter. There's nothing small about it. Vision Euron tells his brother that the Bleeding Star kicked all this off to keep that connection to Daenerys strong for now. That does fit in with what we've fought before, that Danny's birthing of the dragons perhaps brought the comet into existence, or was at least represented by it, and that that whole act brought magic back to the world. Perhaps that is what will allow Euron to do whatever he's going to do overall. Or maybe it's just an open casket and anyone could do it, but Euron's the only one with knowledge of what can now be done because of his failed studentship of Blood Raven or something he's found in Valeria or who else knows what. Something else to have a big discussion about later. He speaks of last days and broken worlds. Now, I don't know about all that, but we've definitely seen the evidence of society breaking. We've said that loads of times. All those long-held laws and all those certainties and consistencies like castles and traditions and customs, they've been broken. I think we all guess that whatever's going on beyond the wall will make sure the world is going to change and likely the dragons and Daenerys will do their fair share of that in Westeros as well, as we've seen in Slaver's Bay. Probably not to the lengths that Euron is describing though, where he seems to think that he will literally rule everything in the aftermath. But it's along the same lines, and who are we to say? Maybe he will change things that much. Perfectly possible. This is a dark book. This is a book where, yeah, sure, everything will change. You could easily persuade me of that and Euron might be the major vehicle, along with several others. For now, Vision Euron raises a great horn to his lips, and when he blows it, dragons, krakens, and sphinxes bow to him. Most likely, this signifies that he will control the great magical beasts of the world. He has more power than imaginable, and will use that as further evidence that he's the new god. Of course, our immediate attention is focused on that horn, because we already know that horns are a big part of Euron's deal. Is this dragon binder that he's blowing here returned by or more likely stolen back from Victarion? Or is it another one entirely? We probably lean towards the second option because, as far as we know, dragon binder only binds dragons. But hey, maybe you get all the other eldritch creatures thrown in as well. Or maybe he knows how to earn other creatures, such as krakens, through other sacrifices and stuff like that. And this horn dream is just representing that as a whole. We do have plenty of theories, many based off this very chapter, that point towards blood that point towards blood sacrifice and blood in the water and raising krakens, which again shows how much this chapter has reversed engineered our ideas because we've brought that up plenty of times already. This has such an influence on the earlier series, more than any other preview chapter by far. And if we're talking dragon binder, well we do know you're not supposed to blow that yourself, unless you're actually knows a way around that, that you didn't want Viterian to know, or there's a way to remove that curse, so to speak, or whatever it is. We do have lots of ideas about, about either controlling dragons later, thanks to Victarion, or Krakens very soon. But Sphinxes, they haven't come up before. So are, are they around to be controlled? Is that viable? Or maybe these are all actually symbolic. Is the vision really saying that Targaryens and Ironborn and Sorella will follow him? What else could the Sphinx mean? We did note that that has a relation to Tyrion. He saw some Sphinxes early on, but I don't really know how to get into that. I'm not sure. Maybe that's something you can all fill in for me. At the very least, it hints that probably the best case scenario for the world is that Euron will have 
many human supporters from many different creeds. He does know politics. He does know he's currently working with a Westeros in crisis, which will allow him to use his brand of chaos all the more easily. We've seen a diluted version with the Ironborn already. He can just do the same thing to Westeros and take advantage. There are certain people who thrive in such conditions. It's the Peter Baelish theory, isn't it? The much worse case scenario is that he will have actual creatures or magical forces of some kind on his side, which seems completely outlandish if you say it like that. I mean, we don't normally get magic so upfront from George, dragons aside, I know, but you get what I mean. There aren't all just these magical creatures wandering around waiting to be taken advantage of. So it sounds silly if you'd say it about most people. Well, when it comes to Euron, you do have to do a bit of second guessing. He does talk the talk in this chapter. He is pretty persuasive, or George is pretty persuasive. He's certainly got ideas on how to make such things happen. So what if they actually do? Hmm. Well, an answer to that is another vision section that we're about to enter. And in fairness to Aaron, again, he continues to defy his brother, relying on his good old mantra of no godless man sitting on the sea stone chair, which does, unfortunately, smack of Aaron not quite getting the angle that Johan's going for here. I think you need to pay a bit more attention. Such dreams as the sea stone chair are far beneath Euron's scope, as the vision changes and he now sits upon a bloody iron throne. So we probably don't need quite so much help deciphering this part. It most likely says that Euron aims to rule Westeros, or he intends to do so via blood. That's not good news for Tommen, but then it never seems to be good news for Tommen, and we all figure he's on his way out anyway. But that's normally because we think that Aegon or Daenerys are on their way, so how does Euron interact with those ideas? Does he beat them to it? Does he take it from one of them? Or does he ally with one or the other? The last idea seems the most likely. Plenty of theorised about a team-up with Cersei, and given Cersei's current state, yeah, that's easy to foresee. But it definitely seems like there is a wrinkle coming to the face of Westeros. We talked so much about Aegon and the dragons coming, the Targaryens returning in Arianne's chapters. Well, we've got something maybe just as disruptive, maybe even more disruptive, waiting down here in the corner of Westeros about to strike. So the real question for now is if this vision is showing what will be, or merely what Euron will aim for. The fact that this Iron Throne is covered in blood sits pretty well with the Euron motif. We've no doubt that whatever he chooses to do, there is going to be death and destruction at every turn, but it also seems to be in conflict with his actual aims. He told the Ironborn that he wanted to take all of Westeros for them. Okay, sitting in the Iron Throne would certainly represent that. But he's also said in other places, and we'll do so later on in this chapter, that he's aiming for more. He wants to destroy everything. He wants to beat the gods. He wants the world remade. Maybe he wants to do something that involves Blood Raven as well. We don't know. So if all that's true, isn't the mere throne of mortal men actually a bit beneath those lofty heights? Shouldn't that be, like, not that interesting to him? Could it be that the grand and magnificent Euron actually just wants the same thing everyone else has wanted in these books? It could be, or maybe this vision is the misdirection. I think that's the path I take personally. I'm not sure he does want the Iron Throne. He might want it because he needs it, because he's going to use it for these much loftier, mind-bending goals of ultimate destruction and end-of-the-world apocalypse stuff. It might just be a part of his plan, but he doesn't want it in the same way that others do. He doesn't want to actually sit it. He doesn't actually want to rule Westeros. He wants something different. Like much else, you can imagine him mocking the idea of the Iron Throne, considering it beneath him. That fits much more of the Euron we've come to know so far. All these ideas become much more complicated as Aeron sees much more than just the Iron Throne. Upon its bloody blades are the bodies of almost every god he knows. Not just each of the seven, but the Lord of Light and the Great Shepherd, and yes, even the Drowned God as well as several others. So we're back to the beating the gods idea again. 
If it had been the Seven alone, we might have thought it was pointing towards Euron interacting with the Faith and maybe being the one to take down the High Sparrow and that entire storyline. That's still perfectly possible, especially if he does team up with Cersei and she's the one to turn King's Landing from a city with a, at least a strong connection to Faith into a literal den of sin with all of Euron's brood. More sinful than it is already, I mean, but yes, we could also see her do that, taking that revenge against the city because remember, she really hates it. She did beforehand anyway, but since that walk of shame, oh yeah, I think that might have intensified just a little bit. Perhaps all of this is meant to contribute to the idea of Euron seeming like a god because of the power he holds over dragons or krakens or whatever it is. Daenerys is pretty damn close to a deity to some people, and she's only got the one kind of special creature. So what if Euron does have two? Maybe that's what he means by becoming a god, that people will see him as such, because some people will. That's just a fact. Or, seeing as the drowned god is included, maybe this is just another measure to destroy Aaron's own faith. First by being shown that his god is no different to any other, that he's here with the rest of them, and then also showing him as dead and done, defeated by the all-powerful Euron. There is no nightmare more foul for Aaron, so it makes sense that this is what he sees. An absolute worst-case scenario. Everything he believes in, everything his reality is based on, defeated by the one he hates the most. There is nothing worse, nothing worse at all. So if there is any way to influence these visions whatsoever externally, yeah, we could see Euron pushing that narrative for him. Though I must say, I think this extra layer with the gods goes further to support the idea that Euron isn't really after the throne itself and does have those much, much larger goals. <sighs> It's all very confusing, isn't it? There's endless possibilities. Luckily, we now leave the vision stuff aside for a little bit and instead head back into the past for more of the political stuff, more solid footing, as we revisit the King's Moot. Ah, that's much more like it. That's all Aaron has ever actually been useful for, isn't it? Showing us the King's Moot. And we never actually got to see his reaction, did we? We were there to witness the big announcement, but we didn't see it sinking in or what Aaron actually thought about it afterwards. So now, with his visions gone, for the time being, he takes us back to pretty much where we left off, if you can stretch your memory all that way back. Aaron, upon seeing Euron's victory among the captains, moved instantly because he knew what bad news this was for everyone, which was pretty good instincts as it turns out. He went to his preferred candidate, or at least the best that he could come up with, in Victarion. But ironically, Victarion stuck too close to what Aaron had been preaching before. Aaron, he kicked off the king's moot. He's the one telling people that they've got to stick to customs. And when that backfired, he also found dumb old Victarion had backfired as well. He'd listened too closely. He'd done what he was told. He obeyed the king's moot. He now belongs to Euron. Whatever it meant for him personally, whatever it meant for the Isles in general, Victarion was Euron's man, as we've obviously covered in his chapters. So Aaron, well, he doesn't like that. And he basically threw his toys out of the pram. He organised an election, then didn't get the result he wanted. So his reaction is to call the whole idea rubbish in the first place. It's actually a pretty funny passage if you can ignore some of the real word connotations. He said it was for him to undo what they had done. Hmm, not sure about that, Aaron. I think what he really means is it was time for him to undo what he had done. He started this whole thing, he just didn't like what he got out of it. So he's going to fall back on those who are forever an afterthought, the small folk. The nobility let him down, so only now would he turn to the commoner as a last resort. He didn't want to do what was best for them in the first place. He doesn't really want to do what's best for them now. He just wants them to provide the result that he wants. So he promised Victarion that he would do exactly what Euron said he was going to do in whipping up the small folk into a frenzy and challenging his own king's moot. Which, if you think about it and it had gone through, could have been an absolute disaster. We're talking about a full-on civil war here, a revolution. 
it could or most likely would have resulted in blood all over. I'm sure there are more than enough historical comparisons to make there that people smarter than me can do so. I'm pretty sure there's some on the Iron Islands themselves, but I'm not going to go back into that right now because we've still got a lot to cover. But before Aaron kicked off this pretty bad idea, he firstly repeated what we saw him do when we originally met him as a POV, where he goes into the sea to charge his spiritual batteries. It's whilst out among the waves that he heard his drowned god once again, and he just so happened to say exactly what Aaron wanted to hear that Euron was definitely not the guy. Just as Euron knew all along, oh yes, of course he was right. So if Euron was not the man, who is? He takes us back through the candidates now of what his options actually were post-Kingsmoon, just as we've seen both Victorian and Asher do since. Victorian's up first and he's an obvious no. He had his shot and no one chose him. Besides, as we just covered, he's on team Euron anyway. So what about Asher then? Well, she's a no as well. Despite the fact she came closest to defeating Euron, despite the fact that she had a good many supporters, good ideas in general for the Iron Islands, despite the fact that Aaron actually admits here that he really does love his niece best of all of Balin's children, a fact that he probably never actually considered telling her, frustratingly. How many times is that going to come up? Stannis and Cresson, now Aaron and Asher, why don't people just say that they love each other? He even states that she has all the qualities that Ironborn prioritise, but none of that is good enough, it all gets swept aside because of the mere fact she's a woman. Yes, lest we forget what a tool this guy is. Just because he's in his bad position in this chapter, he's still a bit of a dick. He even blames Azure here for Euron getting the win because she didn't throw her support behind Victorian instead of herself. Which, in fairness, was a technique we discussed way back when. It was actually Asher's idea, she put that forward to Victorian, as long as she could be afforded her own level of respect. She said to Victorian, you take the chair, you sit down, be king, that's fine. But she could be his hand, the first ever in the Isles. But again, this being the Iron Islands and Asher being a woman, that was a no as well, no matter the good offer they would have been. Of course, we know that Asher actually did much more to save her Isles than any of her uncles, though she's never going to get the credit. Oh, we miss Asher, don't we? Why don't we have an Asher preview chapter? So if those two scratched out, we might have been thinking that Aaron was about to land on the same Fionn idea that Asher did, but no. Instead, the closest he got to a plan was letting Victorian and Asher get married, despite the knowledge that Victorian is already not into it, but there we are. He's confident, is the point. His batteries are charged, but unfortunately, that is exactly when Euron's crew came to grab him. So that motivation, that plan, if you can call it such, goes unfulfilled as he found himself chained up in the silence. The dungeon we currently find Aaron imprisoned in is pretty damn bad, as we've detailed, and yet I'm going to bet that Aaron still prefers it to the silence, because the silence is about as creepy as they come. No thank you. And if fairest to Euron, at the time, he did not despair. Yeah, I'm going to keep on saying that phrase because it does come up a lot in this chapter. He was able to use his misplaced faith as his supreme source of strength. We can't deny him that. He figures this is just another test, something he can get through with all that strength and dedication. Will that last, do you think? Well, we're going to find out through this chapter. We finally get a rough idea of time and place when we're told that in the dungeon before our current one, Aaron was not delivered food by a mute for once, but by a young, beautiful woman dressed in a lady's clothes. Even Aaron considers her more than striking. And she's here to provide a treat as well. She has porridge and honey. She's even going to spoon feed it to him. Rather than ask about the change of approach, Aaron, once he's tried his luck in getting the girl to free him, asks where he is and he actually gets his answer. This is, or rather was, Oakenshield of the Shield Islands. This is where we were in Victorian's final feast chapter, the last time we saw Euron on page. It turns out that Aaron was present all along, and neither we nor Victorian ever knew. If we hadn't guessed already, this means that this girl is Thalia Flowers, the neglected bastard daughter of Lord Humphrey Hewitt, who championed Euron's coming. Yes, we suddenly remember the crimes that must have been going on up above. The abuses of the women of this castle by the iron board, and how Thalia smiled at all of it. 
and how taken with Euron the woman was. As she confirms her name for us, she reveals she's also been promised to be Euron's salt wife, if she even truly understands the term. To her, she's hearing the word wife, and she's hearing it coming from a supposed king who solved all her woes, so she's pretty happy. We worried about Thalia's fate all the way back in Feast, it was obvious she had no idea what she was dealing with in Euron, and this chapter is going to very much confirm those concerns. And again, in fairness to Euron, he's actually kinder in this chapter than anything we've seen from him before. He genuinely tries to warn the girl. He says, run, he will hurt you, he will kill you. This is a man who knows what his brother is capable of. He knows how he treats women, but failure is besotted. She's off in fairyland. Failure has obviously been devoid of much affection in her life. She's been dreaming of a charming, generous prince coming to save her, and she thinks that's exactly what's happened. Look, she can prove it by all the material gifts that Euron has given her, even though she herself admits that they mean nothing to Euron, and she doesn't seem to recognise that for the hint there is. Euron reflects that this is really just a repeat of the tactics used at the King's Moot. Euron identified that the majority of captains were a fickle lot who only wanted physical gain, or could at least be bought by such. So that's what he did, and it worked. Same deal goes for failure. So far, we've got no reason to think that Euron was particularly seeking her out, but he still knew what she wanted. He's very skilled at finding these people who can be bought so easily by things he himself has no interest in. That's key. He's very skilled at finding these people who can be bought so easily by things that he himself has no interest in. The dream and promise continues in Failure's mind though, as she reminds us of the humiliation that Euron put her family through. He's even promised that Failure's children will be Euron's most prized, his true children. She is completely gone in her delusion, unfortunately. There is no bringing this one back, Aaron realises. He knows that the very best case scenario is ultimate devastation when Euron discards her. More likely, though, it will end in blood. So instead of trying to help her, he sees if she can help him. He wants her to get a message to Victarion. He likely figures that as much as Victarion might have gone to Euron's side, he would not stand for the damp pair being locked up. And besides, what other option does he have? Unfortunately, failure has bad news on that front. Victarion has gone east to bring back Daenerys, or her dragons, or both. She will be Euron's other wife, Daenerys will. And failure is so giddy with her new situation, even this can't dampen her spirits. Indeed, she thinks that she'll be the best of friends with the Dragon Queen, and everything will be rainbows forever. Aaron has stopped listening, though. His one hope has disappeared. Yet still, he does not give in. He actually leans into his faith even harder. Back in the present, in his half-drowning cell, Aaron hopes that the waves will take him to the next life because it seems no other escape is coming. Remember, we know this isn't the Shield Islands anymore, so it begs the question of where he is. Not that it really matters because the next part sees him moved back onto the silence to set sail once more. And once they do, Euron returns to be even more menacing than he was before. This time he brings a dagger. Yet this isn't even the real instrument of torture he's going to use in this scene. Instead, it's his tongue as he finally sheds light on what the scream of the rusted door hinge actually means. Yes, this is not a nice chapter and it's about to get much, much worse and much, much harder as a reading experience. In their youth, Euron would physically, and we're going to assume sexually, abuse both Aaron and Euragon. In all likelihood, he raped his two brothers, two young boys. We've heard of a good many dark crimes in these books, but this is somewhere near the very top. I don't think there's any need for me to tell you what an incredibly dark, evil act this is, no matter who it's perpetrated by, but the fact that it was an older brother, someone you're supposed to be able to trust in, someone who is in a position of care or control, well, it just becomes all the worst, it becomes all the more awful to hear about, and it does explain so much as well. Now we understand why Aaron was previously a drunken apartier as he likely tried to distract himself from the incredible emotional pain. Yes, Yeragon's death was a large part of that as well, but we'd be fools to think that this isn't also. 
and we do decry his religious fanaticism but we see why he ended up dedicating his life to something of that nature either again to distract or because he felt some deep down sense of guilt or shame and maybe believed that this would cleanse him there were other factors too but for something this life-changing that early on in your life it affects every part of you as a person and it also explains so much about Aaron's connection with Yurgon, why he cries his name whenever that hinge sounds in his mind, because they went through this together. You wouldn't think it could get any worse, would you? But it does. Not only did Aaron have to suffer this monstrous act, he had to watch his brother suffer through the same, and he probably did feel guilt or shame over Yurgon having to witness the same thing. It's unspeakable. It's almost pointless trying to talk about it from our end because we can never get across what it means of course we can't not on this type of podcast suffice to say there's no higher evil we said at the top of the chapter this was going to change our view of euron and yes it most certainly does that we knew he was supposed to be an antagonist duh. we also knew he had these grand dreams of killing gods and sowing chaos and raising dragons and krakens and for all we knew maybe he was going to do it but that is one thing and this is quite another this isn't evil for the sake of gain or in the pursuit of power or anything like that. It's simply the very worst of abuses that you can imagine. We've heard so much about Euron to this point. We've started to see some of it as well. A murderer, a cruel murderer, a sicko, and then there's this, which is just a completely different level entirely. It really does rock you as a reader. It really does change how you view things. Again, we've got that reverse engineering idea. It makes you think of Aaron very, very differently. Someone who's not a popular character, and for good reason. But it does make you think, and unfortunately makes you feel horrible as well. George said it would be a dark book. We say that every week, I think, and he's proving it already with this chapter. Let's try not to focus on that too much. Let's try and move along. Because even now, Euron continues with the mockery, the abuse. And he insinuates that Aaron enjoyed it. That he wanted Euron's attention. Ugh, okay, so much for moving on. Obviously not, we're going to really have to slog through here. That's a common call sign of abusers who do things such as this, unfortunately. Reflecting it back, making it a choice or, or something that the victim enjoyed. That is what real world people do. And of all the reasons we hope the Euron meets a truly terrible end, this has to take the top spot, doesn't it? Of all the things that he could mean to the story, we're crossing our fingers that he really, really suffers and that there's some kind of justice for this, even though I don't think there really can be that's kind of an oxymoron in this situation but we're hoping still it's almost enough to make you concerned about what this chapter actually could involve and it likely makes us worry how many others euron might have done this to across the world we've got no way of knowing and we're probably all the more lucky for it euron offers his brother an out he wants Aaron to pray and beg to him and if he does euron will give the gift of death so our first question is whether we believe him in that or is he just toying with his brother you probably think the second, given what we learn later in the chapter. It doesn't seem like he'd be willing to give Aaron up after going to all this trouble, but maybe he would. But also, there is this God equality thing. Euron wants to be prayed to because he believes himself a God, or even above one. In fact, this is very much going to be the theme of this passage, as we'll see in a moment. But before that, Aaron is convinced that Euron would never kill a brother, for that would make him a kinslayer, and no one would test the gods in such a way. So yes, we get another little reminder that Aaron is sometimes quite the fool, completely unaware of who he's dealing with and what's already happened. He's literally just ignoring it. He should know. So Euron reminds him. Point one, your theory seems to be backwards because I, the God Defier, wear a crown and everything seems to be going my way. You, someone who has dedicated your life to your God as much as humanly possible, pretty much, are locked up and at my mercy. So that doesn't really work, does it? And on top of that, oh, by the way, I've killed three of my brothers and haven't been struck down yet. Now that gets Aaron's attention. The priest is left gaping. He's gobsmacked. Like we say, we know he should know about one of these at the least, but three? 
Well, Euron enlightens us. And for this, we need a little bit of background information on Greyjoy lineage, which I'll provide for you here. Balon, Euron, Victarion, Euron, and Aeron are all full brothers from Quellon Greyjoy's main marriage to a lady of House Sunderly. But she was actually his middle wife. He had one before and after that. His first wife was a lady of House Stonetree, and she gave Quellon three sons before we ever got to the five that we know oh so well. They were Harlon, Quentin, and Donal. And Quentin and Donal died as infants, but it's the name Harlan you need to remember in a moment. On the flip side of the timeline was Quellon's third and final wife, Lady Piper, from the Riverlands, because remember how much of an outlier Quellon actually was as an ironborn. That whole concept of marrying someone from the mainland, that would be completely out of the scope of someone like Balon or others who we've met, but not so for Quellon, who was pretty different. Either way, together, she and Quellon had one stillborn daughter and one son, the ninth of Quellon Greyjoy, Robin which is the other name that we need to remember. Because Euron, in addition to being an abusive, related paedophile, is also a child murderer. He killed his half-brother, Robin, who was incredibly vulnerable and unable to defend himself in any way, shape or form. And before that was the other half-brother, Harlan, who was already suffering from grayscale quite badly, it seemed. But I think we all know that this was no act of mercy from Euron. Indeed, he seemed to almost perversely enjoy it. So George is just going full tilt with the revelations on Euron in this chapter, which is why it's so valuable and popular with everyone. We're 99% certain that this will be the first chapter to deal with Euron in wins, and George is making sure it leaves its marks. We will come away with an entirely different view of his aims, his capabilities, and most definitely his pure evils. We thought the molestation of brothers was, was enough, but no, now we have a child murder as well. What else are we going to find out? What else could make him worse? Well, that's a pretty short list now, and we've got more than enough here to confirm him as one of the upper, upper echelon bad people we meet in this series. He's just bad. And perhaps that's why George is unloading so much at once in this early juncture, because Euron will be the premium and antagonist for this book, or perhaps even for the final act. And we need to get a sense of the horror we are dealing with, or so far we've got to say it's mission accomplished. And if we haven't mentioned already, it confirms that Euron is a literal psychopath, as bad as they come. Even if he does turn out to be right about Krakens or gods being beatable or whatever else, he is insane to do these things to people. That's just fact. Committing those murders for any reason is obviously just, again, insane. But Euron tells us, or at least hints, that he was actually doing it as part of an experiment. He killed Harlan, again at least in part, to see if what everyone preached about kinslaying was true. He killed a brother and then he went out to the sea, took a piss just to really annoy the drowned god and waited for that supposed punishment. When none came, Euron took that as concrete evidence that there either was no gods or that they could not challenge him. So that incredibly literal understanding or framing of the situation, him saying that it really is that simple, well, there's your unhinged dude. There's your sociopath. No doubt he also killed Harlan because he's sick and he wanted to, and let's also not ignore that political streak was present even back then. All the other children of Ladies Stonetree and Piper were already dead. Killing Harlan moved Euron along as an eventual heir. Yes, Balin was still oldest and was always going to inherit, but after him comes Euron, so he was thinking of such things even then. Robin was the eldest of another line from a different mother, so same thing. And let's not forget his age. Harlan was older than Euron, so Euron must have been at least fairly young when he joined the murderer game, and doing things at such a young age is another marker of the psychopath, isn't it? So we have those more traditional reasons, but another was literally just to test this theory of his about the gods and the fact that he wasn't struck down the quote-unquote evidence of which he's lived by ever since even while ignoring what most religions preach about punishment maybe not being immediate but eventual etc etc that doesn't seem to bother him either that was all decades ago by this point and neuron's ideas on this have never wavered 
so when it came for the third time, he likely didn't even think about it. And this one was a full brother as well. Yes, he includes Balon almost as an afterthought, especially because Aaron should have known that already, even if he was ignoring it. This part is interesting for us because not only do we have another confirmation that Euron killed Balon, but that he got someone else to do it. That's the important part. He doesn't tell us if it was a faceless man paid for with the egg that he threw into the sea, but he doesn't say it wasn't. And it's still possible he's talking about simply having a cat's paw on the inside of Pike, but we probably prefer the creepy assassin idea because it's more interesting and it does fit in with the Euron vibe. So as we said, it fits with the whole me versus the gods idea. That was at least part of his original reasoning, and that's now been extrapolated out to the entire life mission that we're currently witnessing. It relates pretty strongly to the Iron Throne vision that we saw earlier on, and it has us all wondering what this actually means going forward. Is he actually going to challenge some form of a god? We know that some gods, or at least some force that people label as gods, do exist in this world in terms of R'hllor, or the old gods. So is that what he's going to challenge? Is it something to do with Blood Raven and Bran again? Or will it be the so far powerless faith of the Seven? Or something else entirely? Like we say a lot in this chapter, it is very, very hard to tell. For now, in this scene, if we return to it, his point is that killing three brothers has never done him any harm, so why should a fourth, which was Aaron's original protest? The only reason Euron could think of is it's because his brother is a priest, and that's what stays his hand. He won't kill Aaron because he is a holy man with holy blood, and that might be useful later on. So if we were thinking that maybe he actually does think the drowned god might actively kill one of his servants, no, it's not that. He's just waiting for more opportune time so that he can make best use of Aaron. And what use will that be? Well, we know our theories about the blood and the krakens and all that kind of thing, but this is where that kind of thinking originates from this chapter. We've seen that certain blood has certain properties or uses, if you know what to do with it. We've seen multiple examples of king's blood, with blood sacrifice. So is the same thing possible with holy blood? We haven't heard that idea before now, but, hmm, well, maybe Euron has learnt things that others haven't. That fits with him, that air of mystery and the otherworldly. So that's definitely where our mind goes, and we do get pretty hungry to see what Euron's referring to. And let's remember how much blood is associated with Euron as well, just as a theme. Those visions of Makaro, the vision that Aaron had just a moment ago. Makaro did say that he'd sail on a sea of blood, and we've also had visions of Victorian having a bloody axe while still being connected back to the controlling Euron. It goes on and on and on. But at this point we get this quote from Euron. For now, you are condemned to live. Which to me is very, very close to Circe's, he does not have my permission to die. Seems like they're made for each other, doesn't it? Euron leaves again, and Aaron is smart enough to both curse his brother and hope for his death. That would be really, really useful for both Aaron and, it increasingly looks like, the world. The question of holy blood and what Euron is going to do becomes the focus of the chapter, as in another dungeon, Aaron is joined by further prisoners, and all of them priests of different religions. Yeah, we're really getting into the meat of it now. Euron is collecting priests, or, or possibly just collecting collections of holy blood that happen to come in the packaging of priests. So the question of what he's going to do with it becomes all the more focused. Three of the new prisoners are septums from the faith of the seven. That makes sense. They'd be in the most abundance in this part of the world that we assume they're still in. They could be from the Shield Islands, or the Ironborn might have raided more of the actual Reach coast. As mentioned earlier, the faith is the religion that we've seen the least actual power from, so it'll be interesting to see if their holy blood, if that is the thing, is actually worth anything, or if that'll be a distinction actually available to us in the first place. Euron clearly wants a varied group, however, as he also has a priest of R'hllor. Is that variance important? Does he need some blood from each group and each religion? Or could he just do whatever he plans with just a bunch of, let's say, red priest blood, but he just so happens to have a bunch of different people? Well, we don't know. This particular priest of R'hllor has suffered even worse than the rest of them. His hands have been burnt down to the bone. His face has been burned as well. He's been blinded. And soon enough, he dies. So we have to ask, why has this one received much worse treatment or different treatment? Or perhaps it's just the fact that he's been a prisoner longer. Is there some connection between his religion and burned hands? Think of Makara and Victorian after all. 
Maybe this one tried something against Euron and paid for it. Or if we want to go into some really deep theories, perhaps the Dusky Woman is reporting back to Euron on what Makaro has quote-unquote done to Victarion and his hand, and this is Euron's idea of revenge. Or he might be witnessing by other means. Perhaps he just knows that the followers of the law are the most powerful out there, as we've seen ourselves. Who knows of these guys? We really can't tell, can we? Which brings up the question of where this one actually came from. It seems highly unlikely that he was picked up from a coastal raid of the Reach. Old Town? Maybe, but as far as we know, Euron hasn't been there yet. Which leaves the more likely option that this guy was captured somewhere far back in Euron's journeys. He could have been a prisoner for months or even longer. The effect of such is obvious in his eventual death. What it does do is hint that this blood plan is one that Euron has been thinking about for quite a long time now. That idea is confirmed when two more are confined to the dungeon, although priests might not even be the right word this time. Warlocks is more appropriate. Warlocks in the east, pale and starved with oddly blue lips, and one of them has lost his leg most likely due to Euron's tortures, so he is strung to the rafters, and when he does, he cries out the name, Pre. It can be a little bit of a mind-blowing moment, especially if memories of Feast are getting a bit dim. The clues were there, they're from the east, they have the blue lips, and now this, the name, Pyat Pre, the warlock of Calf that we have to cast our minds so far back to remember. It's just incredible connections from George yet again, stringing these things together years and years apart. We've not seen Pyat Pre for four books now, but warlocks in general have come up. Back in that feast chapter, Euron did tell Victorian they captured four warlocks from a Carfine Gallius. One of them was killed straight off for threatening Euron, pretty bad idea, and was then fed to the other three, just so we can double down on his cruelty and to throw some cannibalism into the mix. We've got every other taboo in this chapter, let's get the last one in there. We can combine this with information from Dance, because Zaro's Iron Daxos told Daenerys that two weeks after she left Carth, Pyat Pri gave chase with three fellow warlocks to seek revenge upon her for the burning of the House of the Undying. So while we were never told explicitly that Euron captured Pyat Pri's group, well, it all fits, we all assumed. Still, it is nice to have that confirmation, even in this manner. What we don't have confirmed is whether it is this screaming fellow who is Pyat Pri, or maybe he's the one who was killed originally. He might be the other one in this dungeon, or wherever the hell the fourth one is. He could be any of them. In fact, this mysterious fourth might be kept elsewhere for the lessons in dark magic that Euron told Victorian he was receiving. Yes, that's a dodgy four, isn't it? Euron's pretty bad as it is. He might be learning more. He might be learning more information about Daenerys, possibly. Ugh, not good. We don't want him being more knowledgeable. Because that is perfectly possible, that that one is pre, that he is acting as the teacher. Maybe he's bought himself a slightly nicer position than these two, at least for now, hence the crying of his name. As I say, we know that Pre definitely would have some things to teach Euron. At the very least, he could have told him about the Shade of the Evening that brings on the visions. They, they would have had a lot of it with them. And I'm sure he has plenty more besides to teach him, so even more power and knowledge being directed to Euron here. And for what it's worth, I will include, the world book does say that Pre was aboard that ship. But more importantly, it also says they had a dragon horn with them that they assumingly were going to use as their tool of vengeance against Daenerys. So this may well be how Euron came into possession of Dragonbinder instead of from Valeria as he claims. Or maybe he still has another, now he has a different horn with different capabilities. We did see him with a different one in that vision, didn't we? Obviously though, none of this is known to Aeron. He thinks Pre must be the name of a god, because what else would a priest have to think about? And instead of focusing on the fact that these other poor souls are suffering through the same misery as him, Aeron stays being Aeron and simply denounces them as fools following false gods. So there really is no situation that will remove his eternal blinkers. That's proven for us now. Though he does at least admit that there's a logical question of why Euron is collecting priests as he looks around this dungeon. We've also got to wonder, is incredible agony or torture just a part of whatever Euron thinks he needs to unlock the magic of their blood? The Red Priest was so bad that he died. The Warlock has lost his legs. Aeron will wind up on the prow of the Silence later on, and we can guess that the Septons are in for something equally horrible. 
How much does that tie in with these themes of blood sacrifice that we've seen before? How much need is there for pain beforehand? Does that infuse into the blood somehow? Because yes, we do have plenty of blood and we've got it from different sources like we said. We don't know if that's something Euron knows is a requirement or maybe he's just playing it safe. The loss of the Red Priest doesn't seem to be a big deal for example. And later on we're also going to find that plenty of blood in general has been given to the sea from non-holy men as well. So is that a part of it too? And to what end? The potential answer is so horrible that Aaron won't even let himself think of the possibilities. We'll have to do that ourselves later at the end of the chapter. Instead, he despairs. Victorian is gone. No hope there. His own followers would think that he's hidden away and abandoned them. His whole reputation is probably in tatters. Everything has gone wrong. And such a mood brings on thoughts of Eurogon in Aaron's dreams, which is pretty understandable. In his waking moments, Aaron keeps up his praying. And when he does, the two warlocks speak back, but of course they do so in a language that Aaron's never even dreamed of, so he thinks of it as nothing more than babbling. Now the Septons at least should be able to converse with Aaron. They do speak the same language. I'm not saying they'd be able to formulate some amazing plan of escape. I'm not saying they'd even really be able to comfort each other, but it would be something, wouldn't it? There's two issues with that though. It's a reasonable assumption that Aaron would continue with his stubbornness and refuse to talk to them anyway because he's like that. But of course we never find out whether he would or wouldn't because the other issue is that Euron has had their because the other issue is that we find out Euron has had their tongues cut out. Of course he has. And he returns now, apparently coming off a full dose of shade of the evening by looking at his lips. And it seems we've reached a new stage of Euron's progression as he's put aside the driftwood crown, won the king's moot, and replaced it with one of irons. It's points made from the teeth of sharks, which does sound pretty cool, we have to admit. Would any of the ironborn be annoyed at this discarding of their crown? Some of the old heads, perhaps. Aaron, if he wasn't in this position. But not the majority. They're too busy counting their new trinkets. Still, we wonder, what inspired the change? Is there something specific? Have they done something lately that has brought this about? We don't know. For now, we have to give it yet again to Aaron. He sticks to his guns. He challenges Euron yet again. He insists on the words of his religion, but Euron only laughs. He insults the drowned god. He suggests that if he drowns Aaron, he dies no matter what he believes. Again, he claims the gods are lies and nothing to him, the drowned god in particular, and wonders what kind of person would support such a weakness. But Aaron does stay strong. He insists Aaron might not have had his comeuppance yet, but it will come in the form of eternity. He dares his brother to kill him, as the man did threaten just a few pages ago. Oddly, Euron acts as though that's never even been on the cards. He wants Aaron as a witness to his theory testing. He calls it sweet, but we know really it's just another form of mockery and an attempt to destroy Aaron's soul. Luckily, we finally return to where the plot might be going in terms of tactics instead of magic. What's actually happening with his fleet when Aaron thinks he's pointing out his own victory that Euron cannot hold the shields? His reply is this. Why should I want to hold them? His brother's smiling eye glittered in the lantern light, blue and bold and full of malice. Now we haven't covered Fionn's preview chapter yet because we had to rearrange it, but as many of you will know, Fionn describes Euron's eyes in a very, very similar fashion. He says it's a black eye shining with malice. So we have a connection there as well, which we will cover when we reach Fionn's chapter, but it's worth bearing in mind that connection there. As he once did with Victorian, Euron does show off some of his political brilliance in terms of how he works the captains. In this case, it is the shields. His gift-giving technique worked like a charm. Not only in how it affected Victorian and his sergeants, as we detailed at the time, but it also keeps him in their good books. All they are, they owe to him. He's the guy who gave them a castle and made them a lord, which is much more than anyone else has ever given them. But that's pretty straightforward. We know that theory quite well by now. The extra level is the optics. He knows that everyone else knows he won the shields. It was his plan that allowed them to get the jump on them. It was his name on the letter heading, so to speak. That goes down in his column. No one is confused about the role that those lords now holding the shields actually had during the taking. But as he and Aaron agree, 
The shields cannot be held. They will be retaken. There just weren't enough ironborn left behind. Euron's well aware of that, and he doesn't care. As he made clear before, his eyes are on much bigger prizes. Because he got rid of them as gifts, when they are eventually retaken, his glory will be untarnished. But he didn't lose them. His new laws did. The fools. It's very much a poison chalice idea, or poison gift as Victorian calls it. And it's important to note that Euron has absolutely no loyalty to any of these lords or captains. They serve a purpose, but that's it. He's completely ruthless in terms of making use of them. He does not care about the Ironborn, only himself. And bear that in mind for the end of the chapter when we discuss things going forward. The shields were also barely the beginning for him. He confirms for us that his longships are sailing up the Manda. They are threatening the Arbor and the Redwine Straits, some of which we did learn about via Samwell's final POV and feast. Joan claims it is the old way reborn. Aaron calls it madness, forgetting the fact he was all for the old way earlier on in the chapter. These ironborn have <laughs> no sense of irony or self-awareness whatsoever. Aaron doesn't care about what he's doing though, and Euron doesn't care about what Aaron cares about as he produces more shade of the evening, or evening shade as he calls it, and forces it again upon his brother. Aaron says no, Euron says yes, which unfortunately is very much the basis of this abusive relationship and Euron as a character in general. He does what he wants, others be damned. So back to Visionville we go, although Aaron's descriptions quicken somewhat. First up are the ships of the Ironborn, adrift and boiling, adrift and burning on a boiling sea that's coloured blood red. Initially, you'd think that would be pretty bad for Euron, but given what we've just been talking about, we really can't say such a thing for certain, can we? We know it'd be bad for the Ironborn in general, but Euron might have just used them and spit them out. He might leave them to whatever fate this is. I think many of us could see a scenario where the Ironborn pay the price for A, their wicked ways in general, but B, choosing Euron and being bought with all the shiny baubles. I could definitely buy into that thematically. I think that really fits. Or the other option could be that these Ironborn ships that Euron sees now are actually the Iron Fleet and they're the sufferers of the rivalry between the two brothers. Whichever faction it is, and it could easily be both if we're honest, the idea of ships burning and a sea boiling makes us think of what a truly evil person could do with a dragon. Dragons are really, really dangerous even when in the power of the purest people, i.e. your Daenerys. We've just had this chapter, and many before, detailing how Euron is pretty much the exact opposite. Imagine that amount of power with his sick, cruel personality. Yeah, no thank you. So this is definitely an image that we can believe in coming true. But when we combine it with seeing Euron on the Iron Throne again in the next vision, in a semi-repeat of earlier, I think you could say that burning Ironborn is likely an afterthought to Euron. They burn, he succeeds, he doesn't care. So that fits into what we said a moment ago. In fairness, it's very easy to extrapolate that idea out to humanity in general. We've already discussed how little he cares for plunder or castles or titles. He sees the value in how he can use them, but they don't mean anything to him personally. Euron is just built differently. He has different goals and concerns. That's why no one is going to be able to handle him, because he doesn't care about his own ironborn. And you could argue that he doesn't care about such inconsequential things like humanity or its throne, and it's those eerie god missions that really dominate his mind. So, the next vision, we have Euron on the Iron Throne again. Except this time it's only half Euron. The other half is Squid, and Kraken, Monster. So perhaps this is a symbol that he'll succumb to his own magics and go too far. That's probably being too hopeful. Maybe it's confirmation for us that Euron is already a monster, with more than questionable humanity. Or perhaps it's a symbol of the price he must pay. It's probably the monster thing though. Mokoro has seen him as such before, like we mentioned earlier, in his own visions, so that's worth bearing in mind. Probably it's really the idea that we'll get a true monster on the Iron Throne, even worse than those we've seen before. And we can link up with that idea that he's only going to use it as a tool, because he's basically languishing over it here. He's laughing. He's definitely not doing any ruling. He considers the whole thing, the throne included, as a joke. I suppose one more idea we could take is Euron telling Aaron, like he has in many other ways in this chapter, that the Drowned God is fake, but he is real. 
The deity that Aaron wants isn't there, but a monster, a mockery of what your god is, stands strong. It gets even more interesting with the second change. Euron is not alone. Next to him, beside the chair, is a woman's shadow, with pale white fire in her hands. Beneath them, the dwarves make a return, though this time they are locked in carnal embrace, yet also biting and tearing, destroying one another, all of which is a source of laughter for Euron and his mate. This time, the dwarves are even closer to what we saw in Danny's vision. The idea of the people of Westeros, or maybe even the nobility, destroying themselves even as they claim love. We know how true that is, we've witnessed it. So Euron and his partner will, what, sow chaos and confusion amidst the people? Set them to destroying each other? Yeah, we could see that from Euron very easily. And what of this mate? Well, Cersei fits the bill, I suppose. This is most definitely a scene she would laugh at as she seeks revenge upon the city she hates, or just everyone in general, to be honest. Well, she doesn't hit all the markers. Long and tall and terrible, well that sounds much closer to Melisandre, especially the word terrible, but it's much harder to imagine those two teaming up, especially because Melisandre is all the way up the wall and Euron is not. Besides, given everything she stands for, she's like the biggest supporter of the law ever, you'd think she'd be pretty against a god killer, but I don't know, maybe not, maybe she really dislikes power. So it could be either one of them. Although, is Cersei actually that tall? I don't remember her being described as that tall, I could be wrong. And what of the pale white fire in their hands? We do have many ideas about Cersei using wildfire to burn down King's Landing, but that would be green. Melisandre is related to fire as well, but white fire? Well, had a look, and the literal term white fire, those two words next to each other, doesn't turn up as much as you might think in the series. Only twice, in fact. And one of the times it does is Melisandre talking about the white fire of the good old Red God. So I suppose that could fit, but again, I mean, she's talking about the Red God, which Euron would not be all for, so that doesn't make much sense. The other woman connected to fire the most is Daenerys, but I don't think we could handle it if she were to ever corrupt herself and team up with Euron. I don't even want to imagine that. So what about the second time white fire appears in the text? Well, funnily enough, it comes from Euron's own chapter, The Drowned Man, and it's in reference to Dragonbinder. This is the quote. Now the glyphs were burning brightly, every line and letter shimmering with white fire. So, a direct connection to Euron. Does he love this horn as he would a woman? Maybe so. I can't really think of any other candidates aside from the dusky woman herself. She's about the only other woman involved in any Euron storyline, and she is near Dragonbinder. Perhaps is even in on his plans. But becoming his full-time partner next to the Iron Throne is probably a bigger jump in importance for her than most of us are expecting. So lots, lots more visions there. We'll probably discuss them again at the end. Once they're done, we next return to something more personal. We need some more destruction of Aaron's beliefs, and this time it comes in the form of a dream of drowning. Except it is not the drowning he expects according to his religion, but the regular kind that everyone else experiences. That's not supposed to happen to him. He's supposed to be different, but that once solid building block is being taken away. And there are yet more dreams afterwards apparently, but we're not privy to them. A change then comes to the chapter as a mute appears yet again, but this time with keys in hand. Aaron himself knows they've passed some kind of marker. There has been some catalyst to bring it about, but is it a pro-Euron catalyst or an anti-Euron catalyst? Aaron assumes the worst. It's most likely not good news, and given what we've seen in this chapter, we'd have to agree. A voice in the shadows tells the mutes to bring them, so we wonder if we're about to see what this grand plan of Holy Blood is, or we might at least be told about it. It's very clear that something is happening. Who does that voice belong to? Well, it might not even be important, but it could be a captain or another Ironborn that Aaron once knew. That's probably most likely. If it were failure, he'd be able to recognise it. But the point is, the voice says that they need to be quick because of how Euron gets, which is most likely referencing a bad temper. And Aaron agrees with that, which is certainly in keeping with your personality of other psychopaths, your Joffreys, your Ramseys. So I just add that in for context. The priests have been in prison so long that none of them are strong enough to walk, let alone mount any resistance. They have to be dragged back up above. 
And because Aaron has been there so long and his legs have been so transformed, even though it hasn't been mentioned since the beginning of the chapter, he's in unspeakable pain every time his legs touch anything. He's not so different from Duran Martel anymore. Yet even with that, the mere fact he's out of his change is something. It's a huge improvement for him. It's enough for him to think of himself as being free. Aaron knows that's not true. He's anything but free. But just being out of the chains for the first time in who knows how long is a major, major step for him. The sorry group of septons and priests are brought up and up and up until a few mere inches of sunlight finally touch Aaron's face and we get this quote. So golden, the damp air fought, so beautiful. When they pulled him up the steps through the light, he felt its warmth upon his face and tears rolled down his cheeks. The sea, I can smell the sea. The drowned god has not abandoned me. The sea will make me whole again. That which is dead can never die, but rises again harder and stronger. It's actually a pretty nice moment, definitely one of the nicer that you get in any Aaron chapter. It's not often that we find ourselves empathising with him, but this part, especially just that mental effect of being denied sunlight and nature, what imprisonment actually does to you, it really comes across strong here. It's a shame he turns it into something else fitted to the drowned god, but then again it is pretty impressive how quickly he regains his resolve. He's even commanding the mutes to take him down to the sea, which is actually pretty funny. Of course, that is not obeyed. Instead, we have more horror to cover just yet. The priests are dragged through whatever castle we're in until we come to a stone hall. It's described as bleak, which truly is not strong enough a word. A dozen bodies are hanging from the rafters. It's a grimmer scene as you can imagine. Personally, it makes me think of Jessica Jones, season one. She walks in, there's a bunch of people stood on a bar with nooses around their necks, ready to step forward at the command from Kilgrave, one of the best villains ever. But we're talking about a different villain right now, so I won't go too deep into that. But that's what I think of. Euron's captains are sat eating and drinking as though this great evil is the norm. This is just what they've become. They don't even look up. It takes a pretty powerful force to make the Ironborn, of all people, more horrible. Yet Euron has managed it. They've been corrupted. We recognise a few of the names, probably mostly left-hand Lucas Cod, who wears a silk tapestry as a cloak just to really get the disrespect across. Euron finds the strength of him to demand to know who these people were. And as we might have guessed, it was the lord of wherever we are, with all his kin, which most likely includes women and children, unfortunately. As if what we saw in the Shield Islands wasn't bad enough. All the rules have been thrown out. When you come in and take a castle, you're supposed to treat the nobles nobly. That's the rule. That's how the game works. Not only because if we all agree to that, then we generally keep ourselves alive and let the small folk and servants do our dying for us, but also because hostage warfare is a massive part of it. That's how we deal with each other. That's what you do. And we've seen examples of that all over, from the Golden Company to Asher to everywhere in the War of the Five Kings. There are exceptions, of course, but that's what's supposed to happen. Even where it fails, the deal is normally the family dying in battle or being given a noble death. Not this. Not at all. But Euron has no interest in hostages or rules or good grace or anything like that. He's out to make life as horrible as possible for all. Crucially, the captains give us the update on where we are. A small island, a rock they call it, just off the harbour. That's big to Aaron. He's never been this far since he originally drowned. He's a long way from home, he's far from where he believes he derives his strength, but it's bigger for us as a sign of the progression that Euron has made. The Arbor is major, it's huge, it's a super important part of the Westerosi economy, of the Reach's war strength, we do know that Red Wine fleet is apparently coming, and it's much, much closer to Old Town than we were before. So everything we're waiting for, everything we've thought is coming, is actually literally approaching now. And given the reference that the captains make to these defeated souls as pigs, plus Sam's Feast chapter telling us that a place named the Isle of Pigs is one of the places that Ironborn attacked and took for themselves, we can put two and two together and make an assumption that that is our location, that's where we are. Yes, the Isle of Pigs. Victorian and Euron, they do visit some strange isles, don't they? 
When the Ironborn came, these castle owners did what they were supposed to do and they incited the feudal tears. Attack us and we're going to scale this up. We'll get the red wines on you. The high towers are only over the road at Old Town and beyond them are the big bosses of the Tyrells. So don't attack us unless you really want to piss them off. Generally, that's a pretty good idea. That works pretty often. The problem in this situation is that pissing people off is Euron's prime objective. Hence the situation we got. The Ironborn did attack. They did all these awful crimes. The captains provide greater context. They agree that Aaron is too far from his home waters and that their own religion is currently in memory. Perhaps they're doing that as a way to assuage their own guilt, I don't know. They're too smitten with what Euron offers is the point. He's been offering the sea plenty of blood already. Apparently thousands have already been killed and sent down into the waters. Initially, we might suspect that number is hyperbole, but with Euron, it just seems all too real. You can actually imagine him putting literally a thousand people into the water. And this is what we mentioned earlier about mixing this more general sacrifice to the sea, and then whatever is planned with the priests on top of that. It seems like Euron is trying to cover both quality and quantity for whatever is coming. More importantly, we're told we'll soon be off again, as we get a much needed update on the Red Wine fleet. True, Ariane told us they'd pass the Stepstones, but in terms of our reading timeline, it seems like this fleet has been sailing for a thousand years now. So we link up with Sam's version of events a bit more, as if all those bodies didn't do that for us. Dornish winds slowed the red wines down, but now they are close enough that Old Town is stirring, believing that they can catch the Ironborn in a vice between them and the red wines. Leighton Hightower's sons, some of whom we heard about back in that ever-connected Sam chapter, are coming down the whispering sound out of Old Town to do exactly that and close the trap. And we're hungry for more, we'd love to know a lot more about that, believe me, but we're denied. This stop in the hall is merely that, a pause. The priests have actually been brought out of the dungeons because it's time to get back on the ships, which they are taken down to now. On the way, Aaron spies many familiar flags of his countrymen, although one sticks out to him in particular. He describes it as a red eye with a black pupil beneath an iron crown supported by two crows. Ah, an iron crown, well he put that on early didn't he? For this is the new sigil of Euron, this red eye, supported by two crows as well. Well if that doesn't give you thoughts of Blood Raven and that connection I don't know what will. I mean he's really kind of flaunting it now isn't he? Aaron also sees other ships, merchant ships, fishing ships of every size, because brother is like brother. The tactic we've seen Victorian do on his way to Marine is the same one that Euron has been practicing closer to home. And there's also this super big ship that maybe we should be keeping an eye on. I don't know. We know why Victorian's collecting his ships. Is Euron doing the same thing? Is that how he's going to use them? Might be. A much more impressive sight is waiting upon the silence though. But this is when Aaron sees Euron in his Valerian steel armour. Yes, we finally see it for the very first time. Let's quote it. The scales were edged in red gold and gleamed and shimmered when they moved. Patterns could be seen within the metal. Whirls and glyphs and arcane symbols folded into the steel. That's a pretty nice description, to be honest. This was worth waiting for. It definitely sounds like the business, doesn't it? But this is only a glimpse. We don't get much more. We want to see it in action. We want to know what it can really do, like we guessed that earlier. It's even enough to impress Aaron. He knows what a big deal this is. This suit is singular. It's infinitely valuable. And that's even with him having no knowledge of the others and the actual true value of the stuff. More importantly for him, he takes it as evidence that Euron truly has been to Valeria because, well, he figures where else would he have got such a thing? And so far we have to agree, although it's not a certainty by any means, but to Aaron, it's another part of this chapter that tells him, hey, Euron is for real. He's true. All these outlandish claims that you said were bollocks before, no, he's actually acting upon them. So that's a big deal to Aaron and to others, this proof that it's been to Valeria, because this is the, a mystical, dangerous place that no one can actually walk upon. Well, Euron has shattered that barrier as well. He's set himself apart. He has actually been there, apparently, because of this suit of armour. He is above them. So it all just builds in into that mystique and that mythos he's building around himself. And the man takes the attention back for himself straight away. 
when Euron decrees that the priests are all to be bound to the prows of the ships. Briggs and dungeons are no longer required. So we have reached a new stage. Euron is doing something now. Whether it's part of his plan or just some extra cruelty, we don't know, but we could guess. Aaron will get the supposed pride of place being bound to the prow of the silence. The rest will be divided among the captains. Euron says it's to feel the touch of the drowned god, so either that is appeasing those who do remain devout, or it's just further mocking of Aaron, to frame what looks to be his worst ever moment as something to do with his own drowned god. Whichever it is, Aaron finds himself lashed tight beside the figurehead of a naked maiden, one that has had her mouth removed because Euron is nothing if not detailed. Aaron is near nude again. The lever that binds him is going to become incredibly painful as soon as it becomes wet, which is in about 30 seconds time because this is it. They're leaving the Isle of Pigs, they're off again to spread yet more terror. And Euron's even left behind some more evidence for that protection tier as the castle burns above them. This is a mark of what Euron is going to bring to Westeros. Don't forget that forest in the earlier vision. But there's a better mark still to come for what he's going to bring to the people. When the silence is out to sea, Euron returns to Aaron, promising yet another gift. This one in the form of company. Failure Flowers, the woman completely besotted with Euron and confident he would look after her, is going to receive the same essential death sentence. Naked, she is also bound tight to the prow and Aaron sees that even carrying Euron's child has not saved her. She's just beginning to show now as well, so we know a little bit about the time that's passed, but I don't think we're really paying attention. We're all sitting back in our chairs. <sighs> this chapter just doesn't stop, does it? Somewhat amazingly, Aaron remains devout and even reaches out to failure with something he likely thinks resembles comfort. Really, he knows that both of them are doomed, but despite all that he's seen, all that has happened to him in this chapter, he thinks they will be received by the drowned god and their pain will be at an end. You cannot knock this guy for persistence. We do actually have to really respect that part of him. Now, failure, she's been that much closer to a man who believes himself a god or better. She's seen what a real, actual demon is capable of. She might not share Aaron's convictions that it'll turn out okay, but she's unable to confirm that for us because we have this quote to end the chapter. The girl raised up her head but made no answer. She has no tongue to answer with, the damp hair knew. He licked his lips and tasted salt. So we have this one final horror to staple the chapter shut with. It's a superb representation again of what makes Euron so dangerous. He's hitting on both marks, each of them represented here tied to the prow. In Aeron, we assume, we have this overarching plot or plan of the religious or the mystical or the ethereal in terms of blood sacrifice and bringing about some kind of end of the world type stuff. It's the big picture vibe. And then right next to him, tied to the same prow, is Failure Flowers, who represents Euron being cruel, uber, uber cruel, isn't really not good enough a word, for pure cruelty's sake. Let's consider what's happened to her and how much actually needed to happen, which is to say, none of it. We assume mother's blood or pregnancy blood or kin slaying isn't part of this big plan. He's just doing it to hurt her. If Euron really wanted to conquer the Shield Islands and then take a woman as his version of a reward, he could have. We know he let his men do that, so that wouldn't be a big thing. But he doesn't do that. He puts in the extra effort to make her feel special, to make her feel like she's going to be an equal with Daenerys of all people. We had the rags and the rocks thing earlier on. He told her this whole story that really just made her into a little more than a puppet. And why? Did he require her for literally anything? No. She provided no value or need other than him being frivolous. And one day, he decided enough was enough. He cut out her tongue 
and he sentenced both her and her unborn child and his to a terrible death. He's supposed to have enough on his plate. He's got an invasion of one of the Seven Kingdoms to plot, at the very least, a reshuffling of the cosmic order of the galaxy at most. But he still finds time to do this to an innocent woman because he can. Because he's just that evil or petty or casual about it. And again, it's that combination of having both qualities that makes him so lethal. He's a monster with motivation. Ramsay didn't have that, not on the same level. Even Joffrey didn't really, because he just happened to be in a really influential position. Euron is actually the one who's going to use that madness, use that horribleness to try and do something. And his unique view of the world, whether we term it atheism, nihilism, whatever it actually is, expands the possibilities of that. Let's look at the comparison between the two brothers here. When we think of brotherly connections with Euron, our mind obviously goes to Victorian first, because we've discussed their relationship so much more at this point. But the Forsaken shows how interesting the dichotomy between Euron and Aeron is as well, and it mostly centres on their different religious views. They're basically the polar opposites. In his youth, Aaron desperately needed something to fill a hole. He needed some meaning to his life and something to answer the traumatic questions that he'd been asking. When none were given, he went overboard in filling in the gaps himself, or so we assume. Imagine how fervent he might have been as a priest of the law if he had actually like, seen some displays of power, some real actual power. But Euron, he heard the same silence and took the opposite message. No evidence means no gods to him, or gods that could be defeated. And as we've seen, that approach has coloured his entire life. Maybe some of this is bullshit and he's just buying into his own branding. Maybe he does actually want the Iron Throne and all the normal things, but it sure seems like he's being legit. That he is fully invested in ideas almost too large to comprehend. So that's fascinating, the difference between the two brothers here and how they interact with each other. The combination of Euron's view with the political intelligence that he has is what's truly terrifying. So then let's talk about that. We've had it throughout the chapter, it's been in our minds since the very beginning, but what is Euron actually going to do with his proud priests and their blood going overboard? It's a difficult subject to approach because there are so many wonderful, well thought out and imaginative theories out there, but it's also difficult because it just transcends the barriers of the world, the world that we've got used to and have established over five books by now. Euron might be about to attempt or even succeed in the unimaginable, which makes it pretty hard to square in our minds. It's also something we have to split. There's probably something Euron is going to do very soon in this priest thing and with what's happening with the Reach, and then there's likely a larger, further off plan that does have to do with the Iron Throne or the Dragons or perhaps even Blood Raven further off. For now, let's focus on the immediate because that likely relates much more strongly to the point of this chapter in the use of priests and holy blood. I think there's two main schools of thought for what this is going to be used for, and to be honest, they both bleed into each other pretty easily and could both be true. The two separate points are an attack on Old Town and the raising of a Kraken or some other incredibly powerful force that you can use or at least unleash. So like I say, you can see how those can blend pretty easily. But let's deal with the blood first. It looks like Euron intends to spill their blood into the sea, likely all at the same time and place. We've already seen plenty of regular people also be thrown into the sea, but there's a strong chance this is going to happen all at once via a battle with the Red Wine fleet. As mentioned earlier, George has been keeping tabs on this fleet for the better part of two whole books now. He's brought it up multiple times for multiple people, and when George makes a point of doing that, it's normally for a very good reason. And that fits even better with the idea that I've gone on about multiple times about George still needing to scratch his naval battle itch. He wants to write one, and we want to read one. Now it might be that Euron sacrifices the priests prior to the battle and raises a kraken and therefore crushes the Redvine fleet that way, but I think not. Halfway through the battle? Maybe, but not before because that would rob us of some of the cool naval battle stuff that I believe George wants to write. Besides, we'd get into a bit of a situation of whose eyes we're actually going to see this through if Aaron is killed right at the beginning, unless there's a bigger change coming to Sam's arc than we've guessed, which is possible. So okay, maybe halfway through, but maybe it's the battle itself that will get him the blood he requires. 
We know he's been basically baiting a response from the Reach since he arrived at the Shields. He's gone overboard in his cruelty to noble families. He's made a violent display that demands a reaction. Perhaps he really wants them to come after him to ensure maximum numbers for whatever he's got planned. But I think what this chapter might be telling us is that it might not only be red rhine blood that Euron wants. Consider that we saw the vision of burning ironborn ships. Basically of the ironborn being in bad shape but Euron being fine. Another part of the chapter we've repeated throughout is that he does not care about the Ironborn, he cares about himself. He doesn't care if the shields are retaken and that those he rewarded are killed. He doesn't care about the actual physical Iron Islands, so maybe he doesn't care about those who are still with him. Maybe he's going to go Roose Bolton and send a bunch of his own men to their death for a larger purpose. In fact, it'd be even worse than Roose Bolton. Maybe Euron is going to throw the battle, is what I'm saying, or let it become as bloody as possible because that's what he needs to get his Kraken or whatever it is he's summoning. I do think that works incredibly well thematically. We touched on it earlier, but there is that sense that the Ironborn kind of deserve this or something close to it. They aren't nice people in general. They are idiots. And this lot were totally smitten with Euron's gifts. They fell for it. They could have had something better, but they chose plunder and material wealth and violence. So this is what they get. Euron not caring for them. Using them to an end the same as he's doing with his own brother. That would cement his own villainness. Is that a word? Villainness? No, it's not. But that's the one I'm going with. So that Red Sea we saw earlier, maybe that's a sea of both mixes of blood. So much, all at once, so concentrated that ultimately we get the largest blood sacrifice we've ever seen. Again, it sounds like hyperbole. So much blood you can turn a sea red, but Euron might actually do it. We know the elements of blood sacrifice and the ideas up north. Maybe we're now going to see it in the south. So let's say that's exactly what happens. It's essentially a fake battle. Well, why? To what end? Well, we really do only have guesswork there. Is it a literal kraken that Euron will raise and be able to control? Is it some other, more personal power that puts him on the level of a god, something he could rival Bloodraven with, perhaps? And what does he do with said power? Does he still attack Old Town? Is there something there he wants, locked up in the Citadel, perhaps? Does this interact with whatever the alchemist is up to? Remember, we know there's something of incredible value that Euron doesn't know is there in Sam's Horn. Does he want the glass candles? They're all possibilities. Personally, I do still lean to him attacking Old Town. I think that's almost too cemented in my mind even before we got to the Forsaken. The man wants chaos and to destabilise society as much as possible. Well, Old Town is the ultimate representation of that ideal, especially on this side of the continent. That's where civilization started, organised civilization, essentially, at least on some scales. The Citadel specifically is the symbol of all collected knowledge, of all history, of humanity trying to better itself, and also to provide the support network that connects the Seven Kingdoms. If Euron goes in there and tears that thing down, especially with his personal brand of over-the-top cruelty and violence, then the world takes notice. It messes everything up. The world is affected, he starts breaking it all apart. That would be a massive, massive step towards that. Even in so simple a way as... Again, if Euron goes in and slaughters the next crop of maesters, if he literally just annihilates them, well, what's going to happen as each of the current maesters dotted around Westeros slowly pass on and die through old age or whatever else, and suddenly there's no maesters out there to replace them, or at least there's a shortage? That sounds simple, but that would be a major, major thing for stopping how this world works. Suddenly, there's no advice out there for each of the lords, each individual lord of each castle around all seven kingdoms, hundreds and hundreds of them. They don't have their advisors anymore. They don't have the medical advice to give them their new heirs. Half of the lords in this world can't even read, let alone work a raven. So the communication goes down, the confusion goes up. It's chaos, as we know Euron wants. He wants to end this world, he wants to bring a new era, well this is a brilliant way to do it. And that's just the logistical, 
What if there are mystical reasons for him coming to Old Town or this area as well? What if he knows something about what the High Tower is made out of or what you can use it for? What if he does want something out of the Citadel Vaults? Is it that Death of Dragons book? Is he even working with the Alchemist? We do know he has a working relationship with the Faceless Men. Or is it something else? Who knows what they've actually got in there? And then, like I said, there is the Horn of Draman that Sam also doesn't even know he owns. And what about Mantis' son and his King's Blood? We assume Euron knows neither of those things even exist, but then again, assumption is pretty dangerous when we talk about Euron. Even if he doesn't know right now, if he finds out, we know he could put both to a use. Again, there's endless, endless theories on what could happen in Old Town. Does Euron sound the Horn of Winter atop the High Tower and thus connect with the Wall and bring it down because those two points are connected in their opposite sides of the map and how they came to be via Bran the Builder? Will he leap from the High Tower to challenge the Mace's old theory saying that he couldn't fly is this forever more linked with a personal vendetta against blood raven and or bran is he aware of bran does he know is that why he's starting to act because bran might rival him is Euron just the bad bran version of what could go wrong and what bran could have been if he was different or if he'd been raised different or the circumstances were different we don't know i think there is a massive connection between at least blood raven and Euron. i don't know if he knows about bran yet but i definitely think he's got blood raven in mind he's doing this either to be able to challenge him or to be equal with him i think there's a bigger connection to Euron and others that he, maybe he knows of them maybe he did see some of the visions that Bran's seen in his own childhood maybe he was supposed to be the Bran but but we're talking a kind of Lucifer fallen angel type storyline where he failed Blood Raven or he was found wanting or whatever else and Blood Raven's actually unleashed a much worse evil on the world and he realizes I don't know there's any number of passageways that could go down we could easily spend another half an hour just talking about the possibilities of Euron this is the big stuff I mean, we talk a lot about theories of what might happen to this character, what's going to happen with this plotline. But this is even bigger, really, when we get down to it. This is bigger even than the Targaryens. We're talking about the existence of the world. It literally doesn't, unless we're going to introduce space travel into this anytime soon, it really doesn't get any bigger, does it? So this is just mind-blowing stuff. And again, I'm tempted, I'm almost tempted to pause the podcast here and write a load more stuff down about what Euron could be up to. But I'll refrain, I suppose it's tempting but i will refrain well i do think in terms of the book in terms of winds of winter who knows when we see the real large stuff come in whether it is euron versus blood raven or euron taking the iron throne or whatever he's going to do will that stuff come later in the book will it come in a dream spring you could make arguments of either but i think what we know is that fairly soonish at least we are going to see the old town stuff that is almost destined to happen pretty early in winds of winter i would say we're probably going to see one more Aaron chapter, you'd think, for this actual battle. And then Sam might take over. He's going to see the remnants and the true horror. I mean, we've spoken about it before, to be fair. We haven't even really got into the Old Town stuff today about the horror that Euron could unleash. We've seen him do it with small locations, individual castles. Imagine what he could do to an entire city. Ugh. I mean, the mind boggles. We have covered that previously in Sam chapters. So you can always go back and listen to those if you wish. But again, ugh. You almost don't want to think about it because we're going to see some bad stuff. Sam is probably going to see some very bad stuff unless he gets out of there very quickly, which is what we're hoping for. But even before that, we will see this blood sacrifice. We will see this battle. And I like that George has almost kind of snuck it up upon us because we've talked about the big battles that are happening to open this book or in the first half of this book or whatever it is. We talk about the Battle of Ice. We talk about the Battle of the Fire. 
We've even spoken about throwing Storm's End in there as like one of the big, big battles. But actually, there might be this even more important, it's maybe even more impressive to read one about to happen down in the south between these two fleets. I'm really hoping we do get to see it. I'm really hoping that George does scratch that itch of his because it's an itch of mine. I know we'd really like to read that naval type battle. Unfortunately, we might be punished with having to read about the sacking of Old Town as well, but we'll have to lump it. But I do think that provides some kind of mirroring and just balances the map of what's happening where because yeah of course the north is the most important and we know how important king's landing is and we have our eastern storyline but now the south is really really going to make a big jump into the main stage right into the middle of it not just in terms of physical battle but in magic as well all the magic is supposed to be up there far in the north and the wall and everything like that but now whether yon's going to create something or whether it's already there there's going to be a big magic thing down in the south and what i think is ultimately going to happen really i think how we can look at it thematically is that there's a big bad evil thing coming from the north and for the past five books we've known that and we've been safe in that knowledge that further south you go the further away you are from it but i think now euron's making his own vice i think he's going to be the horror coming up from the south the others coming from the north and westeros the seven kingdoms everyone alive is going to be caught in the middle and oh yeah there's this big fiery thing coming from the east as well hence the compass closes that's how i'm going to put it north south and east they close on westeros the end of the world for our purposes the center of the world so it's all coming and again there's so much more we could get into with the high towers and what sam does and uh, just loads and loads and loads of stuff let's wind it back in just for the final thought here i mean yeah talking about euron talking about all these big things but let's not forget the main character is aaron and well i'm gonna go out on the limb and say we maybe get one more chapter of him the final battle and then that ends with his being sacrificed i don't think he's going to be saved i don't think that's on the cards for him i think this is george's love letter to the character here we get the most exposure about him as a person and why he is who he is then the next one is all pretty much action 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 th seeing all these horrors literally as first hand as he can consider that he's probably going to be doing the whole thing with failure's rotting corpse next to him <laughs> yeah that kind of thing and then that's probably it for Aaron. So let's give him his due here because like we said at the beginning, the whole point of this is Euron trying to break someone beyond merely killing them. That's not enough. He wants to strip Aaron of everything that he is. And again, it's a mark of cruelty. That isn't a requirement for the blood sacrifice as far as we know. Euron doesn't need Aaron to be completely distraught about everything he believes in or anything like that. As far as we know, maybe it is part of the spell but we doubt it that's all just extra euron being evil to be evil because he hates aaron because he wants to make his life as terrible as possible but ultimately let's remember it, it doesn't work aaron doesn't break even with all these things that happen to him even with all these things that he's put through he doesn't actually lose his faith which is is pretty impressive and you wouldn't think of it because ultimately he does still lose the chapter he is still tied to a prow about to die he does still suffer but Aaron sticks to his guns he sticks with the drowned god and yeah we don't like the guy and uh, he's not the favorite character but you do have to give it to him that is impressive and maybe maybe George is just trying to sneak in there this message that Euron can be resisted and maybe the world won't turn to complete darkness and won't be destroyed because of him maybe that's just me putting too much of my own thought on it there maybe that's too far but let me know what you think let me know what you think of this chapter as a whole because it is amazing 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 and let's all just appreciate the mastery that is the forsaken what a chapter 
Okay, we're going to leave it there. We've got more coming, don't forget. Next week, I believe, will be the rearranged Beyond chapter. It was supposed to be a couple of weeks. That's a really, really good chapter. I really like that one. It's our lone window into the north. We'll be talking plenty of, obviously, the Battle of Ice, the Battle for Winterfell, what Stannis is going to do, what's going to happen to Theon. We will be talking quite a lot of Bran, more than you might think as well. As I said earlier, part two of 100 Questions of the Winds of Winter is now with you. So give that a listen and give us your answers because we want them. We do still have the sporkle. I will get it out soon, I promise. And in fact, actually, we've got one more bonus for you on top of that because don't forget, we didn't do Victorian back at the time when History of Westeros did. So we're going to put that on the end and that we can look at as a bow tying, can't we? We can go right back to the beginning, back to Slaver's Bay, like we did when we started these preview chapters. And that'll be Scraps and Scrolls for the Winds of Winter so far, anyway. So lots to look forward to here on the aisle. Let me thank you all again. It's all great stuff. And we will see you here on the aisle next time, hopefully with the Lakers knocked out of the first round. Fingers crossed. Again, by the time you listen to this, I might look a complete fool, but I'm willing to put it out there into the universe. Either way, let's see you next time. Thanks, everybody.